So um, we're at Richard Saraday's place here in Southern California, uh, uh, near Topanga Canyon. Uh-oh, now everybody knows where you live. Uh-oh. <laughs> now I'm in trouble. We can't switch over to the other... almost knocked over my beer. We can't switch over to the other um, uh, input. Uh, so I'm going to do what I have to, uh, have to do what I did in Roswell, which is play the in intro from my phone <laughs> through the microphone. So you'll hear people talking in the background and probably an airplane and dogs. Hey, here, intro. No, the the whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We we need to go through a turning point in the study of of this whole domain away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that they can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we well conditioned here? Yes. for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about... Radio I, I can fade this out with the. There you go, perfect fade out. <laughs> well done, I must say. Well done. Well, let me keep the. I can. Uh, I can hear the background stuff, but hardly. Yeah. Um, it is a little after six on. What is today? Today is the first of first, October. The first October, because it, it's Halloween season, the very, the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> when the veils are thinned. Yes? Yes. Speaking of veils being thinned, you know when I first moved up here? Uh, it, yeah. You know, we had some very... How long very, have you been here? 20 years? 96. Since 96. Oh 21 years. God. Yeah. We had some very, very, very uh, strange paranormal events happening around here. I understand that... The top of this canyon up here at one time had been uh, where the uh, the Indian nations of the south, you know, part of of the state, would gather annually for their their big meeting. You know? Yeah. Uh, and I think this particular area where where you know this now 
with the house I live in is must have been part of that because um, early on my two brothers came out to visit, you know, as they often do, and we were in the backyard. I may have told you this story, but I'll share it with your audience here. And uh, out here in the grass, you know, overlooking the canyon, uh, I was explaining to Jerry about, you know, some of the odd events that I'd seen and experienced. Yep. And I was sitting there in a chair like this, and Jerry was facing me, and suddenly he jumped back, and his eyes got real big, <laughs> and he went, whoa! And it, what's the matter? He says, did you see that? And I'm like, like, How can I see it? Thing. I'm looking at you. Yeah, I said, no. He said, and he looked at Gloria and said, did you see that? She said, no, because she hadn't been looking at the time. And he said, this red ball, he said, this red ball, it's about the size of a volleyball, you know, came zooming in behind me from, from the right, went behind my head and went like this, whoop, 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 up and down, and then shot off to the left. And he was, he was freaked out. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I said, damn, I wish I had seen that. You know? <laughs> uh, he said, let's go inside. I said, well, what difference is that going to make? <laughs> you know? At this point. At this point. But Besides, my... if we stay out here, maybe I get to see it. Let's switch places. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I like, I like that. But my son used to get in the middle of the night sometimes to go get water from the kitchen. Yeah. Going from the bedrooms across the house, passing the living room to the kitchen. Yeah. As he passed the living room area and see into the living room, sometimes as I was crossing through there, he'd see little balls of white light swimming around in the living room. Well, you know? Yeah. And then you stop and look at them and they go and then shoot out, you know, right to the walls. And he'd tell me about this, but one time I guess, at first he thought it was because he was half asleep. You know, the first two times it happened to him, he was much younger then. And I guess one night he wasn't half asleep and he was coming back from the kitchen after getting his water. You moved the headstones, but you left the grave. <laughs> yes. You know. And he was freaked out. He actually came, woke me up, which he'd never done before. His dad, dad, dad. He said, "You know, I got this. You know, he's kind of all of a sudden like this. I would these balls of light. These balls of light." I said, "What? What?" And he said, "They, they were just swimming around in the living room." I said, "What? What are you talking about? I'm trying to wake up, you know." He says, "Yeah, yeah." I said, "You sure you weren't dreaming?" He says, "No, no, no. I, I thought I was dreaming at other times it happened, but no. This time I was wide awake, and they were just swimming around the living room." And I thought about it, and I thought, "Well, it's one of two things. We had just recently taken a trip. I'd rented an RV, and Nikki was very little. Matt was about nine. Nikki was about four, and we had gone to uh, Grand Canyon and then down to Sedona, and we had." Uh, at an RV camp right below the main drag in Sedona at, back, at Oak Creek kind of RV park. Yeah. My RV was backed up to the creek. And uh, I think I've told a story about I went out, you know, to sit by the creek and have a cigarette. And there's a big old rock that's kind of, you know, on the edge of the creek where you sit on it and the water's right there. And it was very shallow. Like it runs about this deep to that deep, you know, depending on the time of year. And there were stones you could walk across it. But across the creek, just... You know, like the creek was about 15 feet wide. Then there was kind of this, you know, scraggly little bushes and stuff like that for about 20 feet. And then the sheer wall, it went up about 100 feet, 150 feet. And up there was the main drag into Sedona, right? Right. And the park was right down below it. That's the way Oak Creek runs I think runs you told there. me about this soon after it happened, but yeah. not, well, not, you know that, not, not on a show like this. What's the what's the figure that you see? Pocapelli? Cocapelli. Cocapelli, right? And you buy these little images of him, you know, the trickster, yep. right? So I'm sitting there on the rock, smoking a cigarette, and all of a sudden, from right in front of me, like, like somebody was standing 15 feet away on the other side of the creek, comes this maniacal kind of 
weird laugh. I mean, really, if I could imitate... So if think of the Wicked Witch of the West, that kind of shrill... <laughs> kind of mocking, counting, yeah. you know? And, of course, it, it just... Man, it just shocked me. Like, whoa! You know, it caught me by surprise. And so I had this big old flashlight. You know, one of those big old... With a 12-volt... Big old 12-volt battery. And a big yellow case. I had it standing on a rock behind me. So I grabbed it. And I shone it around. Who's that? Who's that over there? You know? And I looked around. It was giving me goosebumps. And it was yeah. kind of a strange... And I didn't see anybody. So I got up off the rock. And I walked over the stones to the other side. And I looked around. Looked around. And there was nobody there. So I came back, and I sat back on a rock, and I put the, the flashlight on the rock behind me, you know, behind me on the big rock, and uh, just tried to calm myself and return to where I was at and think about, well, what the, you know, what the heck was that? And all of a sudden, the flashlight fell off the rock behind me. Mm. If it had fallen off in front of me, it would have fallen into the creek. Yeah. It fell off behind me, which is just on the path. And so I reached behind it, reached for it, and then didn't feel it, so I got and looked around for it, and, and it was gone. It wasn't there. How long ago did you, since you'd seen it? Just moments. Hmm. So I stood up, and I said, wait a minute. It's got to be here somewhere, you know. And it wasn't, it wasn't pitch dark, you know. I could see a little bit. If it had been there, I could see it. And I heard it fall right behind me, so I looked. It should be right there. It should be like if it fell off your chair and be at your feet, right? Right. Only behind you. Because that's where it went. Get up, kung. But it wasn't there. And so I stood up and I was going, wait a minute. And I stood up and I looked down like that. And I stood back up, leaned over, and I stood back up. And suddenly I felt a hot breath on the back of my neck. This I don't remember from this story. Yeah. And that was really, really weird. And that's when I said, I think I'll go back into the RV. <laughs> and uh, I went inside. Now, I sometimes wonder because I felt maybe something followed us back here. Because there was a spate of activity after that when I got back home. I don't know how that stuff works. I'm just speculating, right? Yeah. But uh, yes, I know we were talking about this when I was ghost hunting in uh, Nova Scotia here a couple ah. months ago. Yeah, we brought up the haunted mansion. Ghosts will follow you home. Joke. <laughs> Remember that? Yes, yeah. yes. And I do think the you know, I don't know. I'm just speculating. But you know, if you get sensitive to the stuff, and at some point, you do. If you keep looking into it, you get sensitive to it. It's just like, you ever done tai chi? No. All right. The first time I did tai chi was when I was in college at the University of Kansas, and you know, in getting my degree in drama. And part of our curriculum was a uh, uh, dance and movement class. And there was a new professor, a young uh, female professor from China, who was a master of Tai Chi. And in the dance and movement department, uh, she was part of our, uh, our movement class, where she would come in. It was a new thing they were introducing, and she was introducing it to the class, of teaching us to do Tai Chi. And you can imagine a movement class is like like a ballet class. You have a wall, a mirror, where you see you, you know your whole the whole room reflected in the mirror. Uh, and we would stand facing the mirror in a line, and she would stand facing us. And she would teach us the sequence of Tai Chi moves, you know, starting with standing with your hands at your side, and you'd raise your hands in front of you like that, you know. And then you would do these kind of rotations like that. You'd crouch your knees a little bit. 
stay very centered over your center. First thing you know, you picture this ball of energy in your belly, right? And then you'd learn how to move in such a way, if you watch people who do Chai Chi and do it right, mm -hmm. the movement never stops. The energy never stops. Oh, yeah. The, the, the one, one um, what's the word? Pose flows as in, flows flows in, in the yeah, next Right. One. And you learn these certain ritualistic, precise uh, movements, right? Yeah. And you rotate this way, and your feet change, and you turn this way, and then you turn this way, and then you do this, and you push this way. And you just do it. She said, just do it. Yeah. Right? And eventually you're going to start to feel the energy. Right? Right. And that's what happened. You get, little by little, you get sensitive to it. You just have to have, kind of like, oh, ye little faith. You just have to do it with the expectation that eventually you will experience it. You will feel the chi. Yeah. You know, even though you don't at first. And that does, in fact, happen. Right. Yeah, uh, which is very interesting. Uh -huh. uh, gradually, and I'm going to get on my feet for this, and I'll try to speak up. Here, I, think I, I can demonstrate it better than I can tell you, and I hope the microphone picks it up. Here, I'll turn the microphone towards you. All right. So eventually, you know, you're, you're doing this kind of thing where you're standing, and you bend your knees as you raise the, your hands, the back of your hands up on either side of you, you know, like that. And you turn, heel step out, you flow. One hand, like, inside the other. Yeah, it looks like what I see people out in the park doing it. Or yes. They used to do this on the uh, on PBS in the morning. They had a Tai Chi show. Yeah, and it ends with it's very interesting because you go through the movements, and the movements become like a, a like a musical piece. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. Mm. You know, and it's kind of self-contained. The result, though, is at the end of it, you've enlivened your connection with this chi, your conscious connection with it, and at the same time, you've enlivened your whole body's energy level. Yeah. You know, and calmness. You know, much like other disciplines do, like, I guess, like yoga or whatever. And you feel really invigorated. But aside from that, what happens is, as you become more attuned to the chi, the chi works for you in many ways in other parts of your life. Um, that transition into Tai Chi becoming a long part of my life at KU, University of Kansas, during that year, because it was part of an experimental play. Uh, called, we took the Aristaya Trilogy, right? And the director had spent a year studying in Poland with a, a Polish theater director named Jerzy Grotowski. And you would really, really appreciate what Grotowski was trying to do. It connects up with some of the things we've been talking about. Uh, yeah, people don't know, um, before the show, Richard and I were saying, we were talking, it was like, I gotta save this stuff for the show. Right. It has to do with um, personal transformation, alchemical transformation, what's going on when you're doing, looking at these weird things, but please go ahead. Yeah. And we will get to that. Yeah. So, Grotowski was, had a theater group, and what they were trying to do, what Grotowski wanted to do, was get the left brain out of the way yeah. in theater and in creativity, right? And so... The challenge yeah, let, was, the, let the right brain be, be dominant, but the left brain is there kind of making sure it doesn't go off the rails. Exactly. Yeah. They have to work together. Yeah. But we're so left brain dominant in Western culture that it's a real chore to undo that yeah. or to move beyond it. Yeah. And your early attempts are, 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 are like a baby trying to stand up and walk. And you just fall flat <laughs> in your face. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the idea was to find non-literal sound and movement to represent text. So we're going to take the Aristia trilogy... And using this approach, do our do our construct our our play using this kind of dance and sound 
to express the the, the, the wording of the, of the Aristotle trilogy while using the wording of the Aristotle trilogy, right? So we actually use the text of the play. Yeah. So you tell the tale in the classical Greek sense where, you know, there's a chorus. You know, the first early plays, there was a, a, a chorus that responded to the hero character. Right. And the hero character would talk to the chorus, and the chorus would respond. Yes. And they used masks. You know. And Yeah. And, and the chorus was like a subtext. Yes, yes. And an exposition of what was going on subconsciously. Yes, a, comment, a commentary. Yeah. You know? uh, early Greek drama, which is phenomenal when you think about it. You know, we should be at that place again. Uh, and there are theater groups which really work at this. But it was quite an experience because when we performed it, uh, we performed it in the Thrust Theater, the Experimental Theater at the University of Kansas, which had a thrust stage. So the audience could sit on either side and in the front. The only wall which wasn't available was a back wall, right? Right. So part of the stage, not the whole stage, but part of the thrust you could sit on either side of. The rest of it was just a regular stage with a back. Right. But it was set up in such a way at the back of the theater, which is small, I'd say the whole theater was about the size, could seat about maybe 80 people, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it, uh, Equity waiver in Kansas. Yeah. But it was for experimental theater. They also had a main theater, which, which Broadway had been jealous of. I mean, you could not ask for a better equipped theater, mm. truly. Uh, at the back was, you know, a, a wall, and above above the audience, on the second level, there was uh, the light booth, right? Yeah, And yeah. if you went upstairs, you go into the light booth, you come on the other side of it, and there was an open area where it was also a little balcony, you know, where you could sit a few people and look down on the stage. Right. But at your height, where you were, the, you know, the whole top of the theater, since it was thrust, were these pipes forming like three-foot square grids, right, that they hung the lights from. Right, exactly, yeah. Because you were lighting directly mm -hmm. down sometimes. So, in the course, of, we worked for months. We met seven days a week. And again, this master of Tai Chi had been invited by uh, the director, Peter Klau, uh, to teach us Tai Chi. As a uh, part of the exercise was to unify this group, the 12 of us that he had selected to be in the play, into a very in-tune-with-each-other group, where we sensed each other all the time, where we, where we, we didn't move outside of the group. We, we really we moved and acted like an ensemble. Yes, really as, a, as one organism. As one, yeah. yeah. And uh, then he assigned, like you would come out of the chorus to do the dialogue of one of the characters in the Aristotle, whether it's Clytemnestra or Agamemnon or Orestes yeah. or the, uh, the, uh, the Furies, right? Or Apollo, right? And if you know, many audience may not know these, these the Greek theater or the Aristotle trilogy. It's the story of Agamemnon returning from the Trojan Wars to his wife, from whom he's been gone for 10 years, yeah. right? Yeah. Clytemnestra, who is now taking on a lover and, uh, when Agamemnon finally shows up, Clytemnestra is not particularly happy to see him. Yes. And she's fallen in love with this other guy. I think it might have been Agamemnon's brother or something. I'm not sure. I forget the detail of that. But it was like... I'm woefully ignorant of this. Well, they decided to do away with Agamemnon, right? So, they do. Now, Agamemnon's dead, and the Furies, who are the lower gods who represent the old blood culture of revenge, right, of, of the old Greek civilization, are hounding Orestes 
to get blood justice for the death of his father, which required him to kill his father's killer. Only in this case, the father's killer is his mother, Clytemnestra. Yeah. So Orestes, like Hamlet, which I think Shakespeare yeah. touched into when he wrote Hamlet, right, mm -hmm. is on the horns of a dilemma. Do you see how it's set up? Yeah. Like, what do I do? Yeah. You know, I what have to kill. I, I have to kill my father's killer, but that killer is my mother. Is so. my mother, and if I kill my mother, you know what? What do I do? Yeah. And if you're saying you must do, you must get justice, and you know we had we had this ensemble, and we had these kind of elastic sort of gowns that we could use in multiple ways. Uh, you could pull a, the gown, which hung down like a, oh, like a Roman toga or a Greek toga, to your feet, but it was stretchy, so you could pull it up over your head and then act within it, making these weird kind of moves with your arms and legs, so the, the Furies became these odd creatures, you know, yeah. moving and writhing and speaking. They're just, they're just personifications of yeah. uh, forces or whatever, forces. Or, or whatever the gods are. Yeah, exactly. And it was, you know, trying to find, again, working with Grotowski, these non-literal sounds and movements, Yeah. which he spent a great deal of time, for a long time, before we touched the text, because Cloud wouldn't let us touch the text, until we touched the text, and so he saw we had gotten to... At least something. He wanted you to develop an instrument through which this music could be played through. Right, and yeah. something not left brain dominated. Yeah, yeah. Right, you get it? And, it was, and we had one piece of, uh, of set that they had built, and it was like this four by four tower, right, with a base level. It had four wheels on it so it could be rolled around the stage. It had a level then about four feet up. It half, the, the ground floor had, was solid 4x4 four four wood, so you could get on that and be rolled around, right? right? And the second level was only half of it, so you could move up to the second level, and there was like a balcony where you could overlook from the second balcony and talk down. And then there was a third level, the top level, which is also like a balcony, the other side, that you could be on top of and look down from. You get the picture? Am I describing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And this would be rolled around the stage. Now, as it became necessary for one of the chorus members to pull out and, 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 and become, you know, use the text to tell the story, to play uh, Clytemnestra, to play Orestes, right, or to play Agamemnon, right, or the Furies. The Furies always stayed together, though, and never got on the platform because they were supposed to be... Right, they, weren't, they weren't at that Yeah, they were supposed to be coming up from hell, you know. Yeah. So I had been cast as Apollo, right? <laughs> the sun god. And I got the idea, uh, since Apollo was a god coming down to straighten this mess out, that I would go up through the light booth onto the little balcony, and I would enter by swinging my hands from the pipes, right, and drop onto this platform in the third story, and then direct the action yeah. from there. Tell them, no, this is how it's going to be. I, Apollo, am telling you, this is how it's going to be, mm -hmm. right? And... Uh, this is where the Tai Chi and the energy of Tai Chi comes in. Because, first of all, the other thing we'd evolved is don't act. Do it like a kid. Just Playing a game. The, say the words. Right? And uh, so I come swinging in, and, and I was in great shape. Just suddenly this, this thing is swinging across the, above your head, you know, on the light grid, talking the most casual voice, sometimes hanging by one arm, commenting down to the Furies or commenting down to that and then continuing across and dropping onto the top level of this 
platform, right? Yeah. And from there, I would drop down to the ground at some points and move among the Furies and among the, the characters, you know, Rusty's, uh, and telling him how things were going to be from this point forward, that no longer would there be blood justice. That I was now establishing civil law. That hmm. you would no longer take justice upon yourself, like honor killings among the, uh, you know, certain sects in the Arab world, right? You could no longer do that. Where you take you know, honor killing if, if you know if you, if your daughter is raped, right, or, right, exactly. You know that no longer was this revenge, blood revenge, going to rule the day. From now yeah, on, because that never ends. No, right. It would be established by a civil court of peers who would judge you, right? Mm -hmm. And so the play, in a sense, marked that transition in Oh, I see. Culture. From yeah, from a, a tribal, yes. uh, uh, non. Uh, non-agrarian, non-settled culture into one that was... Exactly, right. You got it, exactly. Uh, so that was, I think, part of the power of it. And if you notice, it echoes right through Hamlet. You can see the echoes right through Hamlet, you know, uh, in a lot of ways. But the, the thing was, performance, you know, always brings out a little heightened energy for actors, you know. You rehearse like crazy. But when you have an audience... And the energy from the audience is exchanged, this co-creation we talk about. Yeah. See, that's why the stage is so powerful for actors. Because as the audience suspends its disbelief and buys into what you're doing on the stage, right, this co-creation process takes place. Yeah, you start getting energy, ideas, and everything from yeah. the audience. Yeah. The audience, they don't know they're doing it. Yeah. But the thing is, a good actor can pull that out of the audience and interpret it in a way that might they might even not know, know they're doing, but becomes more powerful yes. because of that, because it's subconscious. Yes, yeah. and it becomes like this third thing created. That's that what you, I try to do on this show, Richard. <laughs> yeah, and you do. You do it quite well, actually. You know, <laughs> But you create this third thing, this, this thir third entity that right. is a combination exactly. of all yep. of it. You know? And for an actor, that's pure bliss. I mean, literally, it's pure bliss. Yeah. You it's know, what you're trying to do. Yeah, and when you give, when you when you stumble into that, people mode, always wonder why you know movie actors are why are you going back to the stage because oh, you need that. You do need it, and it's it's a much more intimate and powerful experience. Now you get experienced theater goers in an intimate setting. In a large theater, it's different because um, it's just different. I don't know. But no, well, you're farther away from people. It's a little more anonymous. Yeah, a little, little more, a little more proscenium arch. You know where yes. Where there's that, where's that, that uh, d division, the fourth wall, mm -hmm. you know. But an intimate theater is much more intimate. It's much more, you know, almost like a relationship, you know, yeah. is happening, and you're, you're checking the other person out. You, you know, you're checking each other out, and you're, yeah. you know, responding to each other, yeah. and uh, it's it's very powerful, and that's the joy, that's the magic, and that's the thrill. Uh, performing in that setting, and I'm sure it's the same thing is true for musicians, you know, yeah. in a small setting yeah. as opposed to a large proscenium. I get a little tiny taste of that sometime when I'm speaking because I spend the first 10 minutes basically trying to get on people's good side and let them know, look, I'm not here to tell you what to think, I'm not here to tell you that you're wrong or I'm right or anything like that. I'm here to share an experience with you and to have fun and... I basically spend the first 10 minutes not being threatening. And when I see peop more people laughing and relaxing, then I go into my spiel. Because before that, people are just kind of like... Yeah, close just off. waiting to see. Because there's some truth to that thing about George Bush, why he was elected. 
They wanted to know that he's the kind of person you could have a beer with. Stupid reason to vote for a politician, but I can see exactly where that came from. I did you too. Yeah. I told you about this, the, the Woody Allen thing. I got this from Woody Allen. There's an interview with him. I'll play it for you if you want. He's brilliant. He is brilliant. There was an interview with him from the 60s this guy did when he was still talking to interviewers about this stuff. And he said, if you want to be a comedian, you know, what do you do? You know, what kind of equipment do you need? The guy was completely clueless. And Woody Allen's like, this is something you want to do, and it's something you want to do with your life, and you have the talent, and you are chosen somehow to be the person that does this thing. It becomes a, a, a thing of doing work and all this. But the thing he said was, like, it has nothing to do with the equipment or anything like that. He said, what I used to do, I was a comedy writer, so I went up and, and went on stage, I did, um, and I did uh, doing stand-up. And my stand-up was, you know, I, he said, I used to write comedy with my friends. And I would get, um, I would write these jokes and I would just read them on the stage. And he said, audience couldn't care less. He said, they don't want, because, you know, he'd read it in the, in the writer's um, uh, room and they'd all bust up. Because they're all comedy writers are hanging out. With an audience, it's a completely different dynamic. He said, they don't care about that. They want, they want to know the person. They want an intimacy with the person. They want to like the person. I mean, I hate to say that, but they, the, the, uh, if the audience doesn't like you, they're going to listen to anything. So he said, the point is that the audience has to like and, and be interested and involved with the person. Then you can tell them almost any joke and they'll laugh. He didn't say this, but that's most of the battle, just getting them on your side. And then you can that's say, oh, so I've seen true. comedians that yeah. go up and they don't have any interest in, in connecting with the audience. And people hate them. Yeah, The jokes are wonderful, but they, they're just kind of like, I'm up here doing an act and I don't really care about you. And that's, you have to get up there and make friends with everybody first. This is for public speaking, but I see, you know, you're talking about an interaction yeah. with people, um, UFO conferences, all that stuff. When I get up there is, like I said, when I see people start nodding and smiling and more people are laughing at the jokes, then I start the talk. Yeah. You know, um, throughout my life, and, uh, you know, for a better reason, I guess just part of my life path or whatever, Dharma, uh, I've been thrust in front of audiences from first grade on, you know, <laughs> not by my choosing. No, no, that's yeah. your that's that's your thing. It's, well, it's, it's like it it becomes the thing that you are. And it doesn't matter and once if, you recognize it. Well, the thing is, I never did. I'd be going left, and something would grab me by the scruff of my collar and yank me over there. Mm. You know, no matter. What, I wanted to be a writer. I never thought about being an actor. I never thought about being on stage in front of people. It never occurred to me. Yet my entire life. That's where I always ended up. Yeah. In front of an audience, yeah. in front Pe of a, a People teaching. may not know, but Richard had a very good career for a while as a, as a working actor. Yeah, I did. In, in TV. Quite a know. while. Quite a while. Uh, and it wasn't an easy path, believe me. Just like enough comedians. He's told me some stories. You know, it's a pretty, pretty harsh path. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's dangerous. It's like walking on the edge of a cliff. You know, there are rocks kind of falling off, and sometimes you're losing your footing, and you're holding up a dear life. And you're looking for some help, and sometimes the help has a price. And some of them, that help price. And you don't even know what high. that stupid price is. It is presented to you when you don't expect it. Yeah, yeah. And you, it's kind of like, okay, do this now. Yeah, and if you don't, say goodbye because the old saying, "I can make you, I can break you." That yeah. has real teeth in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you, buddy. And it's not just, and you, you're thinking about this in the way of like, you know, a person coming up and saying that. And that's a big part of it, too. But fates are part of it, too. I had, this is painful. 
I had, uh, I'm trying to do drone work. A guy I've been bugging for a year. He calls me and he said, we have a job this weekend. We will fly you to the, the, the location. We'll put you up in a hotel. We'll, tr we'll train you on our equipment and we'll pay you the day rate you are asking. That works. Yeah. That weekend, Sigrid's birthday and two, two shifts of work and a few other commitments that I'd made to people. I would have had to drop all of that, tell Sigrid, sorry, I gotta go work, tell my actual job, I can't come in tonight, sorry, I, you gotta find somebody. I can't do that. No. Which is why I'll probably never make it in Hollywood and never did. But I will never hear from that guy ever again. I know that. Because somebody else was standing there going, yep. For whatever reason, he could come, or she, whoever it was, said, I'll do it. They dropped everything and did it, which is what I was, should have done. Uh, well, in, it, 20 years ago, I would have done it. Well, I said the same thing. Like when I, left. I can't go back, even if it's going to ruin everything, I can't go back on promises to people. I just won't do it. Yeah, I, I, And that's I, just I, why I would I, never make it in show business. Well, that's it. It's like it's, it gets you very tricky. You have to be there when people say you're on. And Yeah, and if you don't do it, you, that, that ship is sailed. You get, yeah, you get passed over. Yeah, that ship is sailed. And it has nothing to do, it's not cruel or anything. That is the rule. You I can't complain about it. You can't whine about it. You say, well, poor me. You know, you're <laughs> you're screwed. That's your decision. That's how it works. And you have to that's like the it. sun coming up or the tide coming in. You can't stop it. Yep. And that's the way it works in the business world. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that too. In, in life, actually. It's just yeah. like this microcosm. There's in, a that moment. That story I just told. There's a moment. Yeah. And it's go or no-go. And you live with both choices. I was um, hanging out with some military people, and I said, I've never been in the military. I don't know what it's like. It was Walter was one of them. He said, yes, you do. I said, how do you, how do you figure it? He goes, you, you paraglide. I said, you're right. At some point, I'm standing there on a cliff, and I have to go running and make and just like, I'm going to be fine. I guess I'm going to be fine. There's nothing else I can do. I'm either going to go or not, so I better go. Yeah. And I don't know. I'm literally taking, literally taking a leap of faith. A leap of faith. That's what I felt when uh, I did the first parachute jump. Yeah. You know, it's like you, you practice and you practice, right? Then they take you up there and you're standing in this big hole on the side of a perfectly good airplane, right? An old C-47 yeah. with a giant big two motors, right? And you're behind a gigantic wing and they line you up and you're standing in the doorway. And then somebody says, slaps you on the ass and says, go. And so I'm, I, I was... You can't go, I don't know. Right. But it's funny how your body uh, or some part of your mind goes, are you freaking nuts? <laughs> you know? And I'm standing in the doorway, and you're supposed to leap out and, you know, make an X with your arms and legs, right? Yeah, so and that, you, that you're, you're, you're not, yeah, tumbling. Right. And then you're supposed to, you know, count 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005, and then pull. Yeah. You know? And then look up to see if your chute opened and to see, you know, well, is it t tangled this way? Then you do this. Is it tangled that way? Then you do this. If it's caught this way, then you do this. If it's caught that way, then you do this. And if none of that's working, then you release that chute, and, and then the you reserve. pull the emergency chute. Yeah. Now, I don't care how many times you practice you know, on the ground, three feet off the ground, and practice landing and you know, doing your tuck and yeah, roll. Yeah, your, your uh, parachute landing fall. Right. Keep from breaking anything. The first time you're standing in the doorway at 10,000 feet, and your body goes, ah! and as they go, your body goes, are you freaking nuts? Yeah. <laughs> and all I remember is my body going, and that was gung-ho. Yeah. That's why they've had me first, right? Because they're like, if he goes, they'll go. Yeah. So my body goes, 
uh-uh. No, 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 no. What are you thinking? <laughs> and the guy goes, go again. I go, uh, and my body goes, uh-uh. <laughs> no. Yeah. So finally he goes, go. Instead of being a slap on the ass, he, he pushes, pushes you out, right? And so, and I, all I hear is somebody screaming. I hear this guy screaming like, ah, you know. And after a second, I realized it was you, because the plane's now gone. The first thing you do is to backwash these giant propellers and the yeah. volume of them, you know, yeah. which is just chaos. It's like, yeah. blah, 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 and, and then it's suddenly just, it's silent. Well, it's it's really windy, yeah. but silent. Yeah, it's silent. And and you go, oh, oh, uh, what, oh. Yeah. And I've never parachuted. Oh, and then you look up. You go, I supposed to check my chute. By this time, you know, if you're a streamer, you're halfway streaming down, you know. But oh yeah, I should check my chute. Oh good, it's open. All right, and then you kind of look around. And you don't realize it feels like you're standing on a platform, you know, like in a treehouse. But at first, it doesn't seem like you're falling. It seems like you're standing there looking down at the, you know, there's a highway and a freeway and there's little, the mountains and, you know, you can see a big part of the terrain. But you're falling, you know, you're in, a, in this controlled fall by the parachute. Yeah. And at some point, at a certain point, you realize the ground is now, it seems to be coming up at you very fast. A lot faster than you wanted to. Than you wanted to. And you go, Oh, oh, yeah, shit, yeah, where, where, where am I supposed to land? Oh, where's the big X? Oh, there it is. Oh, shit, I'm way off, you know? Then you got to pull on your strings and redirect yourself. Yeah. If a wind picks up, which often it does, yeah, it can get... carry you way yeah. out of the area, which happened to me. End up landing like in a... In yeah, a... you have to... Yeah, I learned this in paragliding. Um, you have to think of... And flying, too. Wherever you're going on the ground, you have to think about it way in advance. Also... In gliding, you can you have to remember the entire time you can you can lose altitude all you want. You can't gain. Well, to Unless some you can, dis- degree you can gain, but you don't have control of yeah. control of it. But the the down is going to happen. You control the down and you're fine. And you think about it way beforehand because it, like if I come in high. I can do all kinds of stuff to lose altitude. But if I come in low, I don't have any room left. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Too late to correct. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, that ship has sailed. Yeah. So. And it, it, like it did for us, you know. And I, I, so I was facing into the wind, which is driving me further and further away, you know, and, and trying to get back to us. Ended up in, in area. You're not. It, You're just going to come down faster facing into the wind. Yeah. And I ended up in this toxic dump, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and I'm, I'm I'm wearing this big orange oversuit, you know, they give you. Yeah. And uh, I land in my feet. So they can see where this, you are. Yeah. I, I kind of mush into this mushy ground, which is all stinky and full of, you know. I have to, you know, pick up my chute, wrap it up, you know, carry it. And it's covered in climb o- Yeah, and climb over a fence <laughs> and hike back like a quarter mile. Oh, really? Because that chute is not going to go over the fence. You have to throw it over. Oh, God. It was so difficult. And it was like 105 degrees. <laughs> I'm wearing my jeans and a T-shirt underneath, and I got this big heavy oh, canvas. Oh, this was when you went out with the with um, General Hospital, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, yeah, that was, a, and the ABC was there to cover it. And it's funny. There were three of us in General Hospital, and ABC heard we we're going to do this. They said, "Oh, we're going to send a you know a crew out to cover it, you know, because we can use it for publicity." And we're going like, "We just want to go jump. We don't we want that." We'll shit. have fun. Why, you know? Can we be somewhere without cameras on us for once? Yeah, and then of course my then fiance was, was Gloria, my wife of now thirty-five years. She was the only one that landed on the X. <laughs> the only one that ABC had no purpose in filming, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, and, and Gail Ray Carlson, uh, Steve uh, Carlson, uh, they were both in the show and they ended up getting married and later divorced. But Gail Ray ended up 
uh, at the crashing into the side of the tin shed, two-story tin shed, Ooh. where they packed the chutes and everything else, and her chute folded over the top of the shed. And, and then dragged her over? No, and then fortunately she was slowly kind of dragged down to the ground. And as oh, a, okay. You know, she, and so she put a big dent in the side of the uh, the, the, the corrugated tin on the side of the I hope shed. hope she hit with her back. Yeah, I don't know, what, but she was okay. Oh, good. Either way. And uh, Steve Carlson ended up like, you know, 50 yards from the X. Gloria ended up right on the X. I ended up hiking a quarter mile back to the <laughs> thing, soaked in sweat and exhausted. You know, it's funny. We finished up. They gave us our certificate. You know, uh, we said goodbye to the cameraman, you know, giving him the bird. Got in the car, <laughs> and we were driving away. This is down from Paris Valley. Yeah. And we're totally silent. I've flown through there. They keep having me fly around parachute people. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, right. You have better, too, right? Yeah, I don't want weird things happening through the top right. of my plane. But it's funny because we're all just silent for a while. Right. I was driving. I remember I had my Mercedes 250C. Well, everybody's processing it. And we're all processing it. And then finally, I said, I don't know about you guys, but we're lucky to be alive. That training was not near enough. <laughs> you go, yeah, that's what I was thinking, man. You know, and we're all just like realizing that was nuts. Yeah. You think, you know, a couple hours of training and then taking up there is enough? Uh-uh. You know? Mm, probably not. Not for a first time. Now, to bring this full circle back to talking yeah, about so Tai Chi. How are we going to get back to what is. we were first talking right. about and being Ta connected with yourself? Well, I mean, And we'll I'm, push into areas like the UFO study and all that. But I want to go tie up the story we started as we meandered there about doing this play as Apollo and dropping from the grid down onto the platform and then walking amongst the Furies and directing the action in a very simple kid-like manner, like the most casual thing, like I'm saying, okay, if you put away the dishes, you know, uh, I'll dry them. You know, something like that. We're just not acting. Yeah. Right? <clears throat> Which made where, it, where you're in front of people and you're doing all this, but you're just acting. You're not. Just, you're just like, doing what you would normally just, do. Yeah, just normal everyday stuff, mm -hmm. which I thought was appropriate for a god. You know, I don't have to impress them that I'm a god. I already got all the power. Yeah. And, you know, what I say goes. You know, whether they like it or not, that's how it's going to be. You know? And you're Apollo, so you're trying to be benevolent. Yeah. And, and I'm so wise. Come on, people. You know, I'm wise, and I'm trying to guide these people to a better life. Um, but the curious thing was, is the Furies, you know, the way we did it, with pulling the sheets up over their heads and doing rawr and making their sounds, right? As I move among them, you know, they're kind of half courting from me and half reaching out trying to attack, attack me. And so when I finish, I'm diagonally across the stage from the platform that some of them are push, still pushing like they're laboring under a great weight, which is part of the image of the non-literal sound and movement, you know. And so part of the, uh, the, the Furies are like pushing on this thing with this kind of really hard push, you know, pushing it like this heavy load they've got, you know. Yeah. But the Furies have to do this. That's what they were created to do, you know. That's uh, that, yeah, that, that is their function. Sort of like the Morlocks were created to run the machines underground, you know. And, and so then I do this sort of, I'm finished, so now I'm going to return to my heavenly abode which is the reverse of my entry. So you got to monkey bar yourself back. Right. I have to get up the platform, <laughs> right, up to the light grid. And this is where the Tai Chi comes in. So, and the energy of opening night and this exchange of energy with the audience and this magic that happens. 
So I'm done, and you know, I, I, people have described my movement, and probably because I'm an athlete, as graceful. You know, I move very gracefully on the tennis court. And I, but with the Tai Chi, that's all kind of enhanced. It's a very interesting process. So as I stride across the stage, accelerating to the platform, which I then have to go up to second level, up to third level, mm -hmm. I'm gliding like I'm almost weightless. I mean, I don't feel any weight. Yeah. I leap, instead of from the floor to the first platform to the second platform, I leap directly from the floor to the second platform with one graceful leap and another quick little leap to the third platform and a third leap up the light grid as smooth and as seamless as if you're floating on air yeah. and just casually exit with my closing lines, not breathless, not struggling, back up and disappear over into that little balcony area, go through the light booth, come back downstairs and reassemble as part of the chorus. You know? And my friend Steve McMahon, who's a close friend of mine, cinematographer, we both came out here in 1971. He was in the audience. Hmm. And, you know, to this day, he goes, I've never seen anything like that. He said, that was the most incredible stage experience. First of all, the play was very successful. They kept holding it over and holding it over till we had to vacate for the next show coming in. Right? Yeah. Audience were coming in from Kansas City and other places because they heard about this amazing performance show that was happening, this unique show. Uh, but he still comments on that, on that production, and he says, and I've never seen a performance like you gave as Apollo. It was like nothing I'd ever seen. Did you realize that this was going on while it was happening? I mean, no. or, I'm sorry, did you process this after each performance or after the first time you did it, or it just seemed like some normal thing you were doing? It just seemed like a normal thing. Well, it seemed like just such a, I don't know, a exhilarating, but easy kind of experience. There were no nerves involved, you know. We were so united and tuned into each other and focused because we'd rehearsed for four months. Yeah. Seven days a week. Yeah. We met on weekends. It just became we did party. We did Tai Chi game party. And by the time we got to the cast party, you know, after a show it ends, it, it, was, uh, it was around Easter. And uh, we'd been together so long, it felt like like often happens in the theater, like you're breaking up a family. There's this terrible void. Yeah. Like anytime you complete a creative work or a book or something, there's this this terrible right, void. Exactly. Now what? Yeah. You know. I have talked to authors recently that have uh, finished books and they're like, uh, I said, yeah, you're running a hundred miles an hour, and now yeah. you're just like, because uh, one friend told me this is like, I don't know what to do now. It's like I said, do you have postpartum depression? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like that. It's this terrible void, you know. You got to learn to negotiate with, yeah. you know, because it is. It's it's a hollow feeling. It's like you had this mad passion love affair, and overnight it disappeared. Yeah, you know, and this magical energy you were riding on, you were then. floating on, mm -hmm. is suddenly gone. Your beloved has gone. You know, the same thing is true when when you go on these extraordinary highs. You know, people go to to India and and study in an ashram, and they're in a group, and they're all in, in the sympathetic, and you're all in this kind of high. And then you got to return to the everyday world, you know, and it's sort of like everybody brutal. gets that from yeah. Well, you come back from a vacation, you get a yeah. little taste of it, but especially yeah. when your heart and soul is in something. Mm. Mm -hmm. Do you know what another weird thing that happened recently? I went to um, St. Louis, visited. Fr uh, I can hear me okay. okay. Thank you. 
um, went to St. Louis and visited Tien Thomas. We stayed at his place. We went to see the eclipse. We saw it on a riverboat in the middle of the Mississippi. The full eclipse, two and you a half minutes. The, you have the best adventures, man. <laughs> you do. And how's the soup? Oh, uh, when he says how's the soup, let me just share this. Greg, for the second time in my... Uh, and and, and uh, Bernie wanted to know what was wrong, so we can take a little trip here and, like, why are you having soup? Okay. I'm having soup, uh, for those of you who are curious to know, because about all I can I can get to stay down. Um, I discovered at the end of last November that I had cancer. Go ahead, Richard. It's all right. You don't now. Yeah, it kind of came out of the blue. And, uh, yeah, when does it not? Yeah. Uh, and it was peculiar cancer, extremely rare. I don't know why I should be surprised. My father died of colon cancer. His father died of colon cancer. His father died of colon cancer. Jeez. As far back as we can go. All I remember of my father's father was, you know, when I was a little kid, was Seeing going back in to the back, back room to Papa Deer. They called him Papa Deer. And seeing Papa Deer in bed, he couldn't even get a bed, you know. And, and my only memories of him were the smell of cigar smoke, you know. And this him, in New Orleans? In New Orleans. Yeah. This is back in the, uh, you know, early uh, 50s, uh, late 40s, early 50s. You see him laying in bed, you know, and never, never saw him out of bed, ever. And he passed on before that. Then later, in 1967, my father died at age 59 of colon cancer. While I was off in the army, in fact, uh, well, I had to leave Officer Canada School in, in Fort Sill to go home to see him the weekend before he died. Um, and I was always conscious of that, you know, that was in the background. Yeah. But I, I chose to have a pretty healthy life, you know, and kind of kept that in mind, conscious of what I ate. Maybe that's why I was so obsessed with, you know, health food and stuff. When I came to California, I found kindred hearts where there's good yeah it's, it's the culture here and it has been since probably yeah. the beginning of Cal well at least in the 20th century well it's one of the things I loved about California and one of the many things I love where I got here and I felt like this is where I belong these are my people you know now I can join the community I've always looked for in a sense I think a lot of people feel like that yeah yeah in a lot of levels it's really with them that's a physical you know especially but anyway so yeah I don't do the cancer and that led to a pretty brutal surgery where it'd take you know, I had one cancer was at the junction of my esophagus and my stomach. And they had to cut and remove that part of my anatomy, including the sphincter valve, which separates the stomach from the esophagus, which leads to a big problem with acid backwash, which leads to a big problem with consuming food. And since there's no uh, sphincter there to keep those separated... People think if this is different. This is a, a valve at the top of your stomach, yeah. not, not your butt. <laughs> yeah. No, this is the, the sphincter between your esophagus and your stomach, you know. Uh, My mom was having problems with that for a while. Yeah, and, you know, you see we have, an, we have, we have a, literally an hence epidemic. Hence the soup. Yeah, that has the soup. And Greg brought this up many months ago to me, and it was, like, so delicious. Not like buying the, the boxed carrot ginger soups you get at the market. Greg's is much more original and much richer than that. You know, I think it involves some cream or some milk. and. Well, I got it off the Internet, but I also I started adding stuff that they don't call yeah. for. Like, they don't call for garlic salt. I put that in. They mm. don't call for um, chopped up garlic uh, cooked with the onions. I do oh, that at the oh, beginning. That's the secret. I put it's a like... little bit of extra butter. I put a lot extra butter and cream in there for you so you can bulk up. Yeah, yeah. And believe me, I went from 
As I like to say, I went from from uh, Brad Pitt to Woody Allen. <laughs> 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 you know, from being a, a slim but very muscular and so Bernie, guy. you asked that. That's what's going on here. That's yeah. what, and and. Um, in the last, actually, last couple of weeks, I've, I talked to Richard a couple of weeks ago, and he sounded like a ghost. Now he sounds like a normal person. Mm. Mm. <laughs> mm. He's he's, uh, he's coming back. I mean, I, I, I had, for months and months, I could have nothing by mouth, nothing. Yeah, I, I remember. I brought you something in the hospital. You said I brought you tea, and you said you couldn't drink it. Couldn't even drink it. But he could smell it. Yeah, I could smell it. <laughs> and folks, his heart. So he was huffing, was like. huffing uh, uh, Earl Grey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you see things on television of food, and you go, "Oh my freaking god!" You know, I remember I used to be able to eat it. Yeah, the food is a, an amazing thing. Yeah, and then you watch it, and you look at it. You can't you go eat shitty food ever again now, can you? No. I mean, not that you did. You're from New Orleans. You can't have shitty food. Yeah. But I never was a fan of, you know, of, of bad food. But, uh, you know, before Food's I mean, my important, body, people. You know, when you're desperate for food and you're out and about, you might go through a drive through Even though I'll I quit it. that yeah. years ago. Yeah. I, I will still do it. But if there's yeah. a chance to go to a, very, you know, a, a local place where yeah. people make their damn food, I'm yeah. going to go there. That's the kind of way I am. You know. But then I could have nothing, you know. Yeah. And... Uh, I've lived like that for so long now. My body is so clean. It's amazing. I mean, I smell everything. And it gives me the Oh, no, I loaded up. I've had friends that had uh, cancer recovery, and they just have to bulk up, and it's yeah. always like butter and cream. Yeah, exactly. You know, And cheese. I, I can find and cheese. I, but yeah. the butter and cream is good on your the stomach. The butter and cream is working for me. And the taste, all the way you make it, is so delicious. I don't know. You've got all the internet, whatever, but boy... You chose wisely. <laughs> oh, I've messed with the it recipe. every every recipe. Yeah, I mess with it till I think it tastes right to me. Nah. you know, I don't know where we are in this conversation or where you want to go. So I'll throw it back well, to you. Oh, go ahead. I was going to say uh, you you showed me um, Miguel's um, column at Mysterious Universe about alchemy and UFOs. Oh yeah, um, we were going to go there. I would very much like to go there. I hope Miguel's listening. If not, then um, Miguel, I hope you're listening late, because late, I saw later. I saw your post on uh, Morning of the Magicians. Uh, which is one of those books which I've always been meaning to read, you know, but somehow, and Falconelli, you know, always been meaning to, to learn more about Berger and Falconelli, but never quite got around to it. Uh, yeah, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about the book "Morning of the Magicians" by Louis Powell's and Jacques Ber 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 Berger. Berger. Or Berger. Berger. B e r g i e r. Right, where uh, the topic of Falconelli also comes up. And this is where it ties into our, our, all of our mutual interests, including our audience. Because alchemy, you know, has, has two sides, as Greg Wells knows, and I'm sure a lot of audience knows. There's the esoteric and the exoteric. The exo exo most things have that. Yeah, most things have that. But for the common person, uh, if you're new, new to it, you're kind of saying, well, what the heck does that mean? The exoteric side means, like, transforming base metals into gold. Yeah, the esoteric or what everybody comes to church for and hears blah 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 the minister and all that. Yeah, yeah, that's the exoteric. That's the exoteric exactly, and the esoteric is what's below the surface. That has more to do with, let's say, the Kabbalah approach, uh, the alchemical approach is really about the transformation of the individual of the soul, yeah, of the soul into a conscious, self-realized being, and being a self-realized being comes with, as we say, many perks. <laughs> what are the perks? Well, if you, uh, you know, if you think of stories about you know, exalted beings, whether it's Yogananda or even Jesus, you know, 
Jesus walking on water, Jesus changing uh, water into wine, Jesus raising the dead, uh, these magical stories, which, you know, uh, a lot of people more of a uh, practical materialistic bent think are just mythical nonsense and have been a very detrimental to the world. Well, I don't think anybody would argue that religion has, has led to a lot of pain and suffering and misery and infliction of pain by others and ridiculous rules and restrictions. Uh, but on the other hand, it's also produced some pretty amazing results in certain individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, and once again, that's, I think, because each one of us as a being is on its own particular journey in this three-dimensional realm which we entered 99.999% mm, of us through the womb in an ordinary process like a cow being born or a bird being hatched or a baby being born. It's a very physical process. But it doesn't mean that's all there is to it. Uh, you know, once you, and I think many people have, and I'm not acting like I've had some kind of uniquely special experience, but I have had the experience, and I know a lot of people haven't, including my family, and I was raised Roman Catholic, and when I talk about these things to them, they respect me, but they can only relate to They kind to of it. look at you slightly funny? Well, they know me, you know, they know that I was always the, you know, the... The seeking weird one. The dreamer, the seeking weird one, the one, yeah. The yeah, one I, I turned out different. to be that person in my family. <laughs> yeah, you know. Uh... The, the, what was the, what's the term? The, the, not the black sheep, but the, uh, what do you call it? The guys at the head of his years. Uh, precocious one. Yeah. Oh, yes. Always the precocious one, you know, uh, well, growing up. I was that, but yeah. I understand. And, and, of course, growing up in New Orleans, um, in Roman Catholicism, French Roman Catholicism, which was at that time pretty severe, uh, Huguenot kind of severe, you know, really strict with rules, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and breaking away from that eventually. But I must say, growing up in it, I had no problem with it. It was a very rich life because it was always connected to church. Everything I did, my mom was a super Catholic, you know, we went to church every Sunday. I went to Catholic school. We went to Mass every morning before school and listened to Gregorian chant and sang Gregorian chant, mm. which, you know, after a while, I didn't mind at all because it kind of transported me. And I think the fact it was in Latin and I didn't know the words was part of that. You know? Yes. I went to the Dalai went, Lama twice, and half the time I took off my headphones and just listened to him speaking in Tibetan. Yeah. It seemed to be almost as good as listening to the translation. Yeah, because you, you, you get out of your left brain. Yeah. You know, you're able to move beyond it, which is where all the fun is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, you know, I'd often be transported into kind of a trance state, you know, in that, in that process. But uh, I really enjoyed growing up in, in, that, in that culture. And believe me, with the, with the recovery I've been going through, I've spent so much time laying in the dark or laying in the bed in the daytime uh, just by myself, you know. And you tend to, you know, your mind wanders back through your life. And different days and different nights, it picks a particular theme. And you find yourself going back through time, kind of reliving that theme and looking at different aspects. It's kind of like you talk about your life review when you die. I think it was like that, but I'm not but dead. But over weeks. Yeah, over weeks and months. And instead of being dead, I'm going through it in the slow motion of actual physical time instead of instantaneously like in a dream or something. Yeah. And it's been a long kind of process of reviewing my life and, and, and looking at many, many, many things about it. 
Anyway, the morning magicians uh, that Miguel Romano, and Miguel, I don't know you, but I know you're part of the Paramania group, and I uh, hope to meet you in the near future or the next spring. If that well, all damn it, Richard, out. coming to New Orleans, you could really show us around. Yeah, I, 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 I will. I will come next April to New Orleans. You know, by that time, I think I should be sufficiently recovered. I'm planning on it. Yeah. I'm planning on not being this. I gotta keep bringing you soup. Hundred nine pounds. Yeah, fat <laughs> me up. Gotta fat me up, boy. And I gotta get back to the gym when I got the strength to do that. Yeah. And start getting that Brad Pitt body back. You know. <laughs> Not that I have anything against Woody Allen, but, you know, I've always been outdoorsy, climbing the rocks and the jumbo rocks and Joshua Tree or yeah. playing tennis every weekend, you know. Yeah. And, and now I'm this little skinny... I want to skinny... drive your car again. That's fun. Oh, oh, and it's in the shop getting the the, the, the uh, carpeting redone, uh, and it'll be Richard available... Richard has a 1960... A 74. 74 Alfa Romeo. Yeah, it was actually my wife's car when I met her in 1979, okay. and she had bought it new, you know, wow. in Newport Beach. Uh-huh. Uh, and it is such a cool car. It's so much fun to drive. You know, yeah. an Alfa Romeo Spider Veloce. If you saw the Graduate, that was a 67, which had the round boat tail, you know. This is a 74, which has a flat tail. But it's the last year of mechanical fuel injection. Oh. You know, before they went to electronic Bosch fuel injection. Uh, anyway, and, I, I, we, we drove Mulholland Drive, which is a... Nice twist. It's made for that car. So a few, few weeks ago we did that, and Richard let me drive the car back. It was one of the most fun cars ever. And I drive a stick, so it was just so fun to drive the stick shift. Yeah, you, you're really you're driving the engine, and yeah. you're driving the suspension. Yeah, you know, it's it's city of pants driving. You know. Yeah. It really is. It's really exhilarating. Yeah. You know, and it's convertible. And I can see. I've never been a car person, but then sitting in that car and doing, you know, because in my car, it's, I, the way I learned in a '67 Beetle was, you know, all my downshifting and using the engine and getting used to yeah. the, the sound of the engine, yeah, and the feel of it, and this racks it up like you know ten times. Yeah, yeah. You know, you feel the vibration of the engine coming through the, your, your ass. You become the thing is that I, I fly, and when I have headphones on when I'm flying an airplane. I can feel the plane, Absolutely. and I can feel the vibration, and I can feel the RPMs. I don't have to hear them really, and the same. And when I'm paragliding, and with my with the engine I have, um, my engine does not do what other people's engines do. It's, it's it's individualistic, even though it's the same model. And I've got the feel on the throttle, and I've got mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. my wing. I know how the wing works, so I'm feeling all this stuff subconsciously after a while. But at first, you have to kind of learn it. After a while, it's subconscious. That car got into my subconscious quicker than any other car I've ever driven. It becomes, yeah, you become kind of one with it. Yeah. And that's the exhilaration yeah. of driving a real old-fashioned sports car. And I'm not a car person. I was just like, this is really fun. Yeah. So. Well, I just married the car, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I asked Gloria the other day, because I was going, you know, I, I, I spent way too much money, or Gloria and I spent way too much money restoring this car, not because she wanted to, but because... You know, all through the 80s when she was going through chiropractor school and I was working as an actor, man, that car was break, breaking down left and right. And that, you know, repairs were expensive and finding a good mechanic who did the job right was difficult. And I poured a whole lot of money down that car, you know. Uh, and then later when my son needed a car to drive, well, that town, the Alpha had been pretty beat up. You know, it had been around a long time. It had lived in Aspen and, you know, with the salt on the roads in the wintertime and everything oh, else. Oh, God, no. So it rusted out quarter panels, rusted out floorboards. An Italian car is built for this climate. Yeah, it's built for a Southern California climate, not for ice and snow climate, you know. No. It's a touring car. It's not a race car. 
It's this a, is Radio Mysterioso, where we talk about anything. <laughs> and everything. But we can connect it all back together, somehow. Uh, I, I do believe this, and I'll, yeah, I'll give you a little example. One of the experiences I had working with Dadaji, who was my, my guru teacher in the 70s, I used to go visit him in Northern California. I met him through a friend. I said, I want to meet one of these gurus and see what they do. And I did. And I, you know, it took me a while to understand him uh, and to see just how amazing a self-realized person is. And one of the things you realize is a self-realized person has absolutely nothing to prove. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody claims to be enlightened and they're trying to prove something to you, they're not. Turn around, walk away, better yet, run. Forest. Yeah, those who say run, no, those who know don't say. They're going to lead yeah. you down an elaborate detour to your detriment, and you end up feeling like a fool, like when prophecy fails. Anyway, <laughs> a true master. It's really what he is, is he's closed the gap within himself to the deepest levels where he is one with everything. And the old joke about, you know, the oneness is only a joke if you don't really understand it. If you have been given the experience, and I say given because only through the actions of this energy source and this enlightened person can an unlightened person touch those realms. You have to be taken there, literally. Yeah. by the guru and by the guru's lineage who may not be visible to you but believe me is there because I've been with them and through the grace of the guru as we say I was able to visit many different states of consciousness over the t years of my relationship with him and one of the experiences I had was as I told Greg earlier was after visiting with him for a couple of days I had a friend in San Francisco and so one afternoon I was driving to San Francisco from Marin County, approaching the Golden Gate Bridge in the afternoon traffic. And so I was moving at a crawl, and the fog was coming over Mount Tamalpais and entering the bay, and these fingers of fog kind of moved. You're going north or south on the bridge? Going south towards oh. San Francisco from Marin. Oh, so this is before you get on the bridge? Before you get on the bridge. Okay, okay. You know, uh, before you get on the bridge, and you're kind of in Marin or Sausalito. Sausalito, yeah. right. So I'm in the car. Uh, in my car, and uh, I'm slowly moving in the traffic, and suddenly my consciousness begins to shift. My awareness begins to shift in an almost smooth but seamless fashion, where all of a sudden the fog coming over and gliding down the hillsides and these fingers, and in the distance the fog slowly, you know, encroaching on the Golden Gate Bridge in kind of a slow-motion way, mm -hmm. with the blue sky above it, you know, and the sparkling bay. And all of a sudden, I'm in this different state of consciousness where I, everything is alive. Everything is Everything alive. is alive and everything is an aspect of one thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was amazing. It was like... It's happened to me a couple times. Yeah. It only lasted for a couple seconds until I went, oh my God, and it shut off. Isn't that funny how that works? That's the left when brain. When you give into it, it goes away. Then you're back in separation. Yeah. You're no longer in the oneness. Yeah. And that's the, the, the razor's edge that Somerset Mom talks about in the book of the same name. Yes. Walking that tightrope. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, as an Egyptian... you can't totally be in that state because then you're probably dead. <laughs> but if you're alive and conscious... That's the only way you can be in that state is to walk that razor's edge, and that's what it is because you're going to fall off. 
you're going to fall off into the left brain conscious side of it a lot. Qu- I'm sorry, yeah, a yeah. lot quicker than you fall to the other side. Well, you wouldn't fall into the other. You side. You wouldn't fall into that, but it, because uh, if you do, that means you probably passed you're, on. You're gone, right? You're, yeah. you're, you're, or you're you're truly liberated. Or yeah, like if you go see the, you know, if you go see a Zen priest or the Dalai Lama or something, they're just looking at you and smiling while you talk, <laughs> yeah. and they're not doing that because they know everything about you. They're just kind of like. You know what? I can see it. I can see it happening there, and I hope you get to the thing. And mm-hmm. and you know, and it's. Uh, I went. I told you I went and spoke. I, I went and had tea with a Zen priest twice, in a thousand-year-old temple in Japan. Yeah, my mom took us there, and she knows the the uh, head priest. Um, but yeah, he had. All he basically did the first time was tell my sister and I that we were we were both very lucky to be brought up the way we were and that our parents took care of us and that we were not deprived of anything. And my sister argued with him, which I thought was hilarious. <laughs> no, 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 it we do hilarious. appreciate it. It's like, it's a Zen priest, man. You Shut up. All you have to do is listen. I was like, I'm sitting at a thousand-year-old temple with a Zen priest telling me that I'm a lucky person. You're right. You're totally right. That's totally cool. What else are you going to tell me? <laughs> you know, that's how it would be the, often. And the next time, all, all I remember was him saying, sit up straight, because the Americans tend to slouch. Yes. And he was right, because after that, I've never had... Not that I had problems with my back, but if I notice I'm starting to... If I sit up straight, not crooked or anything, any, you know, straight with my shoulders over my spine and straight over yeah. my butt and all that... Fine. Well, and he, it was so weird that he would tell me something like that. That's not like a Zen thing. Is it? You think he's going to give me a koan or something? No, his koan was sit up straight. Well, and, 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 and like, just like in the Jewish Bible, there's real practical reasons for like not eating pork, right. you know, trichinosis, and not eating shellfish because they're bottom feeders, you know, and, uh, and, and circumcision because of hygiene yeah. and spreading disease, uh-huh. you know. There were really concrete reasons. It wasn't just a question of like, oh, you're torturing the poor little child, you know, circumcising him, all that kind of stuff. Well, the same thing with, with sitting up straight. It's like my wife's a chiropractor. Uh, when you sit up straight, you, you, you take pressure off impinging nerves, you know, that supply energy to all the uh, organs of your body. Uh, and also you balance the muscles uh, front and back so you're not weakening the front ones and you know stretching the back ones or compressing yeah, them your body backwards. knows when you're doing something wrong it's 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 designed to be um balanced and that reminds me of the time that that's why we're bifurcated and have two sides of our brain and yeah. the two sides are the same you know mirror images and all that yeah and and the and the, and the caduceus with the with the coiling snakes which yes, both exactly. mirrors caducus, the yeah uh, yeah uh, caducus which also mirrors the the structure of uh, of the of DNA, DNA yeah. and also mirrors the the movement of the energies up the spine and down the spine uh, to the base of the spine, up to the through the brain, all the way up to the uh, uh, pituitary and the pineal glands. Yeah, uh, and that's on the esoteric side of things again. Uh, yeah. Oh, wait, wait, we have to get back to Powell's and Bourget, but yeah, we will. This is going to back up directly, in, in fact, because this Richard's has to do. That. This, I think this directly has to do with, with, with that stuff in the sense that uh, in the, I haven't read The Morning Magicians, but I, I, I've always wanted to, but I've read you know, things well, about Well, I brought it. you one. Pardon? I brought yeah, you one. Yeah, before he arrived, I said, do you have a copy of Morning the Magicians? And Greg said, well, I loaned my copy to Sherilyn Fenn. <laughs> <laughs> and I went, 
Sherilyn Fenn? You mean Twin Peaks Sherilyn Fenn? Yes. Who, you know, back in the day was this extremely sexy, foxy... Yeah, that's when I loaned the book to her. I didn't loan it to her, I gave it to her. Yeah. So I went on a set somewhere and somebody said, do you want to meet Sherilyn Fenn? I said, yes. Yeah. So we went and she was doing a public service announcement, PSA for um, MTV about reading, about libraries. So on a break in the set, I told Richard this, on a break in the filming, I... Um, my friend took me and said, you know, here's Sherilyn Fenn. This is my friend Greg. He wanted to meet you. Well, it turns out she's a very, very bright and, and, and uh, an avid reader. Yeah. And So uh, I said, if you sign this, I, and I got a picture, you know, a still from somewhere, a picture of her from Twin Peaks. I said, I got a deal for you. If you sign this for me, sign sign this picture for me, I will give you this book. And I signed the book and I actually put my number in. I said, if you're interested in the book, give me a call. We'll talk about it. I, you know, I've... I didn't want to date her. Well, I did. But I knew nothing was going to happen. And nothing did because she never called me. But that's where my copy, first copy of Morning the Magicians with the hardcover, the dust jacket. That's what I expected you to bring. Yeah. You know, I, gave, I, old... I gave that to Cheryl and Fenn. <laughs> I thought you had something you found in a little bookstore, you know, all dusty. And I, went, you know, I did. Can I borrow that? Now you know? Cheryl and Fenn probably has it still. Yeah. If yeah. I ever see her again, I'll say, did you ever read Morning the Magicians? Yeah. I gotta go find myself a good old uh, hard copy, and I have to go to a couple of bookstores here and see if I can find one. Yeah, you can probably find one online, but it's nicer to find them in a store. Yeah, I like to go hunt the stacks. It's always fun these little bookstores. Yeah. Um, but anyway, to tie it all back together, um, basically, you know, the esoteric route, which is uh, really what Morning the Magicians focuses on, not the exoteric so much as the esoteric, which is the transformation individual into the self-realized individual, which I mentioned comes with many perks. And my guru being an example, or we said you know, like walking on water or raising the dead, uh, or if you read Autobiography of a Yogi by uh, uh, Swami Sachi... Uh, Swami Yogananda? Yogananda. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, it's a very interesting book, very heavily footnoted. And, uh, you know, he was sent by his masters to bring the... Uh, this, these lessons and these opportunities to people in the West and to California. And he established a couple of places here in the West Coast, and I've been to both of them. Self-realization, one of them? The Self-realization Fellowship, right? Sunset? The yeah. Sunset. Yeah. The yeah. other one is down the coast. Uh, uh, oh, the one near um, uh, yeah, what's the, Carmel or near... Uh, Carmel? No, south. Uh, no, no, I mean Carmel by the sea, by, by uh, Encinitas. Yeah, by Encinitas, and I've been to that yeah. one, too. Actually, there's a place right near there called Yogi Beach. Yes, Yogi Beach. Yeah, absolutely. Right, right next to it almost. Yeah. You know. Anyway, some of you may know and have been there and know what we're talking about. Some of you may not. Uh, that's all the reason why I find California so fascinating. You know, I used to go to the Self-Realization Fellowship quite frequently back in the late 70s uh, on, on, you know, just for sitting out in there and meditating or sometimes on the Sunday morning service. Uh, I would go join them. And the energy, you know, would be really, really good. Uh, once you get sensitive to energies and you immerse yourself in a place where there are people of like mind, as they say, all doing the same thing, mm-hmm. uh, it can be very reinforcing and very powerful aid to your meditation. That's the only time I'd let down my, my uh, rule about if there's more than two or three people doing the same thing at the same time, it makes me very suspicious. And <laughs> <laughs> well found a suspicion. Yeah. You know, ask, ask Antifa. <laughs> yeah, I'll run away if I see that. Yeah. It's just kind of like, uh, yeah, If the crowd's going that way, I'm going the other way. You know? Well, the only, the only, my only corollary for that is if they allow you to leave right in the middle of it, then I'm all right with it. <laughs> right. Yeah, and that's the way it is there. Yeah, this sucks. I'm going. Okay, yeah. see ya. See ya. <laughs> and that's the way gurus are. Okay, yeah, see ya. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, the esoteric is what interests us here. And I want to tie it into... It, 
we want anything specific you wanted to direct this into before I take off in another direction? Not really. I, I, I will. I, I usually will read comments by people. Uh-huh. <laughs> Carlos wrote this one. We still talking about the alpha. The alpha spiders ended up with uh, a lot of those alpha spiders ended up with dual Weber carbs. Uh, yeah, right. Means. Yeah, I, I knew the early alphas had the dual Weber carbs. Uh, I had the major in my outfit. The XO in my outfit had a, a '60s alpha with the dual Weber carbs. I had dual Weber carbs on my MGB. What a pain in the butt they were, man! <laughs> Don't keep those things in balance. It kept mechanics well paid. I tell you that. Anyway, yeah. And uh, 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 Nines, who was on here, usually said, "What happened to me?" I think that boot is of ten directions. Uh, I didn't notice for about three days. These are the easiest, most fulfilling three days of my life. Nothing impeding, like I was half my actual weight or less. Wow, yeah. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is true. Uh, When I read that, I I think of the um, uh, Alan Watts quote. It's uh, enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. It's it's just like regular life, except about about an inch above the ground. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in the course of my being in California... I've had those periods several times. <clears throat> One was in the mid-70s, uh, where <clears throat> it was, um, I'd already been doing meditation with a meditation group through the Edgar Casey Foundation, their uh, uh, Association for Research and Enlightenment. Oh, but there's one out here. Yeah, and uh, I, well, I was part of that out here, the San Fernando Valley chapter, and I had a study group which met in my house. Uh, oh. That helped me through... Uh, to a very rough period in my life when, you know, because I came out here unconnected, didn't know anybody. Uh, I was going through a, a separation which led to divorce. I was fighting deep depression uh, because I was off my path. I didn't know quite where to go. I didn't even know why I was divorcing, only I just had to go. I had to go and find this thing I was looking for, which I wasn't sure what it was. Yeah, I, I and was you needed space to unhappy. do it. The marriage wasn't that. Right, and it wasn't that. And I felt so guilty. I had a wonderful wife. There was nothing was her fault. It was just me. It's just that I, I, I hastily <laughs> married. Me, not you. you know, I hastily married my high school sweetheart. Mm. When, you know, back in those days, we wouldn't sleep together unless we were married. You know, because that's how we were raised. Yeah. I know it's so funny to you, generation now. It's funny to me now too. And believe and it me, I didn't, a lot I didn't of lay to a lot of people. I didn't lay any of that shit on my daughter, you know, always respected her space. And so for her, her sexuality is completely respected by me, and any choices she makes are completely respected by me Yeah, well, if you give, and my if wife. If you give children a, a, a space, knowing that they care about you care about yeah. them, if you give them the space to do and make their own decisions, I think they'll generally make the better, the, the, the right decisions. Yeah, and they generally will appreciate you a lot more in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I don't hate my parents. No. I never, well, I did when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, but everybody with it, it's worth anything did. <laughs> um, but yeah, after that, I realized, especially for my dad, he was kind of like, I trust you to do what you need to do. If you screw up, I'm going to tell you, you screwed up. I might even get really mad. Yeah. But... That's kind of how we were. I mean, yeah, I, he, you know. he would. When I was thirteen, uh, he would give me the car when I was thirteen, and he'd say, "Okay, go out and drive out in the desert. Come back later." Wow. Wow. He taught me how to drive first yeah. when I was twelve or thirteen well, by that's sitting good. sitting next to him, and then afterward, he just I would just go out on like dirt roads out in the desert near the Salton Sea in the middle of the summer it was one hundred and ten degrees or one hundred and twenty in an, in an unair conditioned Dodge Dart and he just said <laughs> go out and drive it around don't get in a wreck I'll see you later and uh, see that's the thing about you know this this nanny state we live in now you know uh, it's horrible 
Oh, he gave me he gave me chemicals to to uh, to uh, make fireworks too, and yeah. left me alone with that. Yeah. I could have blown my ha- hand off or burned the house down. Yeah, but it's up to you. Yeah, and I was kind of raised the same way, you know. And it's I a think we're leap, very lucky leap to be faith that for, way. for a lot of parents to do that. Yeah, and now but if you don't give them that leap of faith, they're going to turn into wusses. Yeah, and as you see around <laughs> you, I look around you, I go, you know, we're raising. I mean, these unmasculine men. I, 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 I mean, they're, they're wusses. They're, they're wusses. They, yeah. you know. and, and Richard and I are not like right-wing at Christian, all. anything like no. that. We're just kind of like, I agree we're with Richard. Guys, you know? yeah, we're just guys. We're just guys. And I, I, I see somebody that is, it, women too. I mean, to have your own, to know what a male or a female is and how they interact with each other. Yeah. I'm not laying a sex no. um, uh, role thing on people. Just... No, because, you know, a woman would handle a situation differently than a man would, but just as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, any, any situation where there's a, there's a mature individual involved, they will handle it differently, but they will handle it in the right way. Well, one of the differences I see, and, you know, spending 18 years uh, in the if teaching... If raised properly. In the teaching profession, especially in California, is, and, my, you know, my, my mom was a teacher, math teacher, brilliant. All my aunts were teachers because that's what you did if you were an educated woman back in the 50s. Mm-hmm. That was as far as you were allowed to go. If you saw hidden figures and, you know, you had this two, two-pronged thing, first, you're a woman. Second, you're a black woman. Yeah. And your role was very limited. You yeah. were permitted very little space, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In that 50s kind of misogyny and, and racism. Yeah. And hidden figures just, you know, brought me to tears. I grew up in that environment, you know, the South. Yeah, the South, know. of course, especially and, in New Orleans. Yeah. But where, my family was, was, where people were a little bit more liberal. Yeah, a little bit more liberal. They think they were. They, they thought they were. But, you know, in my family, you know, my, my, you know we, we, my mother had to work because there was five children. A lot of time, periods in life, she had to work as a teacher. And so we had, you know, nannies, black nannies who took care of us, you know, in the daytime. And Mary, whom I had for my nanny for years, you know, I, I, nanny, we call them nannies. They cleaned house and they took care of you during the daytime. She was like a mother. I mean, you know, when it was nap time, you'd crawl in her lap and she would rock you and, you'd, you know, and if you were outside and you were doing something wrong, she would wump your ass and take you inside and reprimand you, <laughs> you know. And, you know, so I grew up with like... With complete compliance, I mean, uh, complicity of your parents. Complete. And it's like... Well, that's a, that's a, a comedian had that joke. Uh, he said, "When I was a kid, I'm sound like an old person. When I was a kid, a neighbor down the street would say, you know, so and so was down here ruining somebody's garden, or whatever. I kicked his butt. Here he is." And the parents would they wouldn't think of, about it. They wouldn't think a sec, second thought about it. Yeah. Oh, you should I, child I, I'd kick your ass worse. I mean, you know, yeah. you're lucky. You're lucky, Mister yeah, Mr. Right, Jones, exactly. down the street kicked your ass. Yeah, because you would have really gone in here. I remember my mother taking a strap to me. They would expect you to do the same things with your kids, too. Yeah, and that's how the community <laughs> got along, yeah. you know? That was community. That was it takes a village, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, um, things are different now. I don't know if it should go back to that, but... Well, whatever. Are... It's changed, and it ain't coming back. Yeah. You know, any more than America we knew is coming back. Right, I remember exactly. the day that 9-11 happened, and I was at my school because the buses were already going to the school, so I went on in, and we kept the kids in the classroom. And interesting enough, and tragically enough, one of the students in my class's mother was on the second plane 
that allegedly went into the second tower. I say allegedly because I have so many questions about 9-11. Yeah. None of it adds up. It's like the Kennedy assassination. I think the official story, and by the way, the 9-11 report, you know how much money they spent on that? No. $15 million. Do you know how much money they spent on investigating Hillary Clinton's Benghazi and the emails? 30 More like 70 yeah. or more, right? Because that's political, right? Right. But the point is, their plans for 9-11 were created long before it happened. And it's typical of the, of the, the players, and I include in that, you know, the military-industrial complex and especially the CIA or who knows who else is involved. Uh, that didn't happen by accident. That, that, that was a long-term plan. And if you ever read uh, Progress for New American Century, which was a neo Project. Project for New American Century. Excuse me, not progress, anything but progress. It's a regression to colonialism. But if you read Project for a New American Century, PNAC, and you read their doctrine, you understand what happened and why it happened a lot, lot more. In fact, in that document, uh, it comes to a paragraph which says, all we need to accomplish our goals is another Pearl Harbor, something big enough to galvanize the average schmuck in the American public into giving us permission to pursue our goals, which was the spread of American power all through the Middle East so we could take control of the Middle East in conjunction with the neocons of Israel, right, to control the oil, to control the countries, to basically rule the world, you know, the Western world, uh, with American military strength. And in fact, we have become, and our young people have become, you know, the enforcers of that neocon doctrine, you know, with the invasion of Iraq under false pretenses, you know, with the constant pursuit of, uh, I'm going to say, Halliburton and the other private companies, which is how they get around the Constitution, you know. Look and talk to soldiers, and I have former students who served in Iraq, and I know many people who have served in Iraq. And the curious thing about it is the American public either doesn't know, doesn't care, or doesn't want to know that the commanders didn't have control. The Halliburton and, the, and, and Blackwater had control. In every place in Iraq, the soldiers didn't get their orders from the generals. They got their orders from a civilian who worked for either Halliburton or Blackwater or one of the other private contractor groups. They directed that war. They decided how the money was spent. They're the ones who ordered, you know, uh, trucks to come over and the trucks would have a flaw and so they would uh, park the truck and order another one and then sell the truck, you know. There was so much theft going on, enriching these companies, you know, and what they did with that money is further this hidden agenda, which is hidden from South American people. Uh, what's going on below the surface is so different than what is seen on the surface. But it works perfectly in this national security state. Everything is privatized. Everything takes a classification. Once you're working for these groups, if you're a private contractor or an engineer working on some exotic project out in the desert, your life is owned by them, you know. Uh, you and I talked about this before the show, too. And, you know, over the years, I've talked to many, many people in aerospace. I've gotten a lot of good information, just like you have. Because if you know a little bit, 
and you and you talk to them in the right manner, you can learn a little bit more each time. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like as my theory is that a lot of the majority of of the UFO activity we see around us, you know, and have seen for years in the fifties, is not extraterrestrial. And I'm not saying none of it is, but the majority of it, in my opinion, is human based. I'm very much in the Walter Bosley camp. You know that this had been developed. I'm not, but go ahead, Richard. Well, you know, that's okay. I may move out of this phase. Yeah. Let's put it this way. Right now... Oh, I was in that phase for years, and I still kind of am. Yeah. Some of it is just so insanely ridiculous, and it makes no sense whatsoever in a logical way. Yeah. It's like, well, if somebody's trying to mess with us somehow, it's a human agency, I don't know what they're doing. Well, I, I, no, I don't disregard that. Yeah. But I'm just saying the majority... You know, of UFO oh, reports. Of sightings of and sightings, reports. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. what I'm saying. No, I, I'm, I'm quite in bed with you with that, with the co-creation hypothesis and uh, something something manipulating us, you know. Uh, something, I don't know, maybe we're I don't know how much manipulation is going. I, I, I don't know if the manipulation is closer to 100% or closer to 0%. Yeah, we don't know. Yeah. We don't know we don't know. And that's the honest truth. We have to be take that stance. If you're taking the stance... You, oh no! My stance is complete agnosticism. Yeah, and you know that. Yes, now, all the stuff you're saying about 9/11, I, I'm sympathetic to it, but I don't know if I believe it completely. I don't know if I, I do either. But I'll tell you what I can't can't do is I can't do the research I've done, and reconcile right what happened to what they say happened. Yeah, exactly. So, this know, is the I same can't. thing I've done with. Uh, I had Peter Robbins on, and I said, look. I don't know if there's aliens coming and abducting people and do that. I, I, I have serious doubts that it's what, the way you and Bud Hopkins and Jacobs and a few other, well, they all disagree with each other. But that scenario, and I, he said, well, you know, I was with him for 20-something years, and that's what uh, that's the impression I got, and that's what I think is going on. And I said, I don't agree with you, but I did not go through what you did. If I had spent 20 years with Bud Hopkins, I may very well have held your opinion doesn't mean I'm right or you are. It just means that that's what you were exposed to. Mm-hmm. And, it and may... I can say you're wrong because I have perspective I'm outside of it or whatever, but I didn't live through it either. Just like telling a UFO recipient what they saw. It's like, you can't? You weren't there? Well, that's what's interesting about uh, Carla Turner's take on it. You know, her take, you know, which we evolved further than that even uh, by oh, the I time. Oh, I quote her constantly, especially with the weirder stuff is where the yeah, answers are, yeah. not, the, not the standard. She was a very bright woman. And yeah. by the way. Richard yeah. spent a lot of time with her. You might not know this. Yeah, a lot of time with her. I, cause I, first I think time, Richard in, in, may have introduced us. I'm not sure. I did. Yeah, I did. I, well, I, I connected the, you. I, I saw her at you. the MUFON convention in Austin in 95 Well, I don't know if I introduced you to her formally, Yeah. but I put you on to her, yeah. as, as I recall. And uh, Very nice, extremely smart woman. Like I, I didn't husband. even agree with her at the time then, but it was yeah. fascinating to talk to her. Because she, she was saying, a, you know... Incredibly great point. Yeah, time yeah. out, folks. Yeah. Time out. You're rushing to conclusions here. Yeah. That you was know? the main thing I got from her. It's like, look, I'm right in the middle of this thing, and you people are f- not full of crap, but you're, you're, you're tracking yourselves down something that you're... Yeah. It, it's it, it's something that can't be tracked. Don't uh, track it yet because we don't know what's going on. I'll tell you, that conference I went to in, at the Eureka Springs Conference, you know, they have every spring. Yeah. Back when I, you know. Uh, Where you stayed at her place? Stayed at her place and, and uh, at the conference itself was one of the strangest bun- experiences I've had. I've never had any experiences like that at any other UFO conference, not even remotely. Because what was ever happening in that town that weekend. Yeah. Well, he went into town at the cafes, and people were there from the conference and having lunches. And it's a cute little town, you know, and kind of charming and touristy. Yeah. Um, 
This is the uh, Ozark UFO conference. Yeah, the other thing. What had happened that weekend was way weirder than anything I've seen there before or since. Whatever it was at that time, I was hearing stories on the tables and hearing stories being told to each other in, in, uh, in uh, cafes and stuff, you know, with my big ears listening as I do. Um, it was mind-boggling. People were having all kinds of weird experiences that weekend. And some of them weren't like even part what? of the conference. Let me think of some of the weird things. Um, and in context, what do you think, you know... Well, I don't know if you I, could again, think what's going I on. I don't know. I don't know. I, again, okay, well then, is well, it some kind of weird mind control thing the government's doing? Is it some kind of? Is it some kind of? Is like, it a group mind that's freaking out or something what? Something like that, you know, because yeah. people were having all kinds of weird experiences day and night and talking about it. Well, last night I had this strange experience. I'm trying to recall some of the things I heard that had not directly I, I do with the I told you the night before the first day I met Carla Turner, I woke up at one eleven, two twenty two, three three four. Yeah. I had never heard of that. Yeah, now that that's had some significance or something. Right? Yeah, and then the next day after I left, when my friend took me to the airport, he said while he was gone, two people in in like uh, 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 his neighbors told me him, two people in like coveralls came and they they were working on his apartment like on the water heater, and when they left a couple hours later, there was a fire, it uh, almost set the place on fire. This is the guy who lived above you. No, no, this was uh, West Nations. Like, oh, West Nations? I stayed at his place. Oh, my God. And he said a couple guys came to, some people came to his house and were doing something to his, he lived in an apartment, not building, but like in a, a place where there were three or four places on a property. Uh -huh. He said his neighbors saw these people come and they thought they were workmen working on the water heater. But after they left, a fire started. That reminds me of a Mike Younger story about yeah, the... Not a serious one. I mean, it was put out very quickly, but it was just kind of like, what the... And he said the landlord didn't know who they were or what... It's like, what the hell's going on here? And it, we didn't... Mm. He didn't think he was targeted or anything like that. We were just kind of like, what the hell happened here? Mm. I have this dream. Is it around Carla? <laughs> I don't know. It's like, did something follow me home from, you know, uh, from Sedona? It's like, you don't know. Yeah. I do know, remember, Mike Younger's family. And I cut you it. off about uh, the stories, but go ahead. Uh, well, I was just saying Mike, Mike, Mike Younger's uh, story. Um, Mike Younger's uh, bedroom, you know, his, actually where he and his wife slept, had a metal bed frame. Uh, and his youngest son, I won't say his name, keep it private, uh, Came running to the room one time and, and you know and 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 you know grabbed the bed frame and he, he was being electrocuted. It was like this, 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 you know you can, and you know and then popped off it. And it was about the same time that Mike began to deteriorate. Uh, and what his wife witnessed was behind the house in the alley behind the house, a a few days earlier a Southern California Edison panel truck had come up, climbed the pole electric pole in the alley and had put something up on the pole that looked like a tube and it was pointed at the window of Mike's bedroom. Lucinda. Excellent. You know what's going on? Can you guys hear that? That's different. That's the other one. <laughs> There's owls going. That's great. Go ahead. Um, when Lucinda told Mike, and then she told him about the Southern California Edison panel truck showing up, which for some reason she thought was odd, 
they called Southern California Edison to yeah. check to what see. what are you doing out there? Yeah, and California said, we haven't had a truck out there. Now, I know from the Michael Conosciuto case, you know, it took place with, on the Cabazon Reservation where uh, Southern California Edison sign was on a big building that they built that supposedly was a facility for Southern California Edison, but it was in fact a manufacturing plant for fuel air explosives that was done on the Indian Reservation because we had signed treaties out right. the creation Meaning, of Because it's not, it's not on, it's not on uh, United States properties that right. they want, so they signed treaties. So, yeah, this is in, uh, uh, as, as uh, exposed in the octopus by Ken Thomas and... Uh, and uh, Casalaro. No, okay. Well, who wrote that? The octopus was, uh, well, it was Danny Casalaro who was found, you know, with his wrist sliced. Damn it, I can't remember who the co- co-author was on, on uh, it anyway. Went, it wasn't Danny Casalaro. No, no, but they talked to Casalaro. They, no, they, they didn't talk to Casalaro. They talked to um, Wakonoshudo. Yeah. Wakonoshudo was getting out, or just got released, didn't he? He got released, then he went right back in. They had another charge, huh? To another prison. I don't know why. They won't let him talk. You know what the funny thing is? Here's another synchronicity. I was, I drove right by that prison three times the day he was re- released. Right. You know why? Because I was there to watch a, a rocket launch from Vandenberg, and it was like it's like it's oh, like yeah. five miles from Vandenberg. Yeah, right. And I know that uh, that facility. Lompoc has a fire going right now. Oh, really? Yeah. Still yeah, this is uh, Lompoc, California. We're uh, right outside of uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base. And then, yeah, that was uh, California. You know. Uh, Whatever it is, correctional yeah facility, Lompoc facility. Yeah, he got let out. And then, like within a couple of days, Norio wrote about this. Norio Hayakawa, but oh. he, right right after that, he was thrown right back in jail again. Tell you, kids, <laughs> we we don't have a clue what's going on, man, in this national security state. All I can say somebody is somebody doesn't want people talking at Rikonashudo for some reason. Yeah, <laughs> and if you read the Octopus, you probably find out why. Well, because. He knows where the bodies are buried, and if you start to peel back that, you know, you start to peel it open, there's no end to the peeling, you know? Yeah. That's why Mike used to call it the glass onion, you know? Mm-hmm. You keep peeling off layers, and it's like when you peel an onion. The longer you're peeling it, the more your tears fall. Yeah. I've got, we, we've got 15 minutes. What the hell happened in Eureka Springs when you went there? And what happened at Carla's place? That was interesting, too, you told me about. Okay, well, let me go to Carla's first, because yeah. uh, that 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 is more immediate and I have more specific memory right now. Uh, I'll try to pull back the memory. Owl's good and loud. I like that. Yeah, and they triangulate on this spot right here. One usually goes there, one there, and, I don't know, oh, and the other one right there. So they're kind of like a long isosceles triangle. Uh, and sometimes they just show up and do that little conversation around me. It's really fun, kind of interesting. If you listen very closely, you understand they're communicating. Listen, and you will hear it. It's like you and I conversing. Yeah. You can hear the difference in their voices. But anyway, to go to back to uh, Carlos. Okay. So I got this because, you know, when I was working with Don and Vicky, and I said, you know, I'd like to, you know, write something for the magazine. I'd like to kind of get into I was trying to develop projects with them. But in the meantime, I was living over there pretty much all day. From, and they were working out of their house on Leo Lang and someone. And... Uh, Vicky said, well, a nice way to start might be doing book reviews. I said, yeah, I, I, I've written book reviews before, you know. 
I worked in my high school newspaper and college this, newspaper. This is when Richard was working with uh, Don Ecker and Vicki Cooper over yeah. at uh, UFO Magazine in the n early 90s. Early 90s, 91, 92. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm having some back backwash. Give me one second. I apologize. I'm getting too fast into your soup. Or too deep into your soup. I don't want it to hurt you. Don't don't choke it down, Richard. I'm I'm just no, I'm getting you know my appetite ahead of my common sense. I'm gonna hide that. <laughs> I'll be okay in a second. All right. Okay, I'm okay. Now, so now, she handed me this book. Said, "Well, here's one review. It's called Into the Fringe." <laughs> and so I took it home and read it, and it was like, "What the?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a weird way to be dropped into the abduction thing. Oh, baby, it was weird, you know. Yeah. And I read it, and as I, you know, what I want to do after I finish writing it. I think it's been reprinted. Oh, yeah? I'm pretty sure it's been reprinted. But I still have, I think, my original copy with the pages yeah, yeah. falling out. I've got Taken and Into the Fringe, both signed by Carla. Yeah. Taken's very interesting. Yeah. Um, also, the story of what's his name? Uh, that, that, that psychic who found out his life was a lot more complicated than he originally thought. But uh, in, I read Into the Fringe, kind of reread it, wrote my review, going, boy, this is fringe, you know? Yeah. You know? And I decided then that I would call Carla and read it to her. <laughs> and open up a conversation. Yeah. And first of all, see how she responded to my review. And she wanted to rip my ass for it. She could, you know. We ended up on the phone for about three hours. And that's when she was very engaging, you know. Uh, and I was like, after talking, I was like, this is very interesting, and she's a very bright woman. Yeah. Maybe I'll look a little closer into this. Yeah. And she said they were going to the Ozark UFO conference, and at the time... Why did you come out and hang out? Well, and I remember at the time, I was also trying to develop projects for film and television, and that interested her, too. Like, uh, I might be a good Hollywood connection, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, with all that in mind, she invited me to come to Little Rock and go to the conference with her, you know? And so I jumped on the chance and flew out there. They met me at the airport. Yeah. Her husband, Elton, you know, yeah. was driving, and Carla was in the front seat, and I was in the back seat. But when they picked me up, she got in the back seat, and I got in the front seat next to Elson, Elton. And so we drove in the airport back to her place in, the, in Little Rock, outside of Little Rock. And the first thing I smelled is marijuana, you know. And she's already lit up a joint. And, she's, and I had not smoked for a long, long time. And... This is something, I took a class in producing from a producer who used to do real-life stories. He did a movie about that, that lawyer in San Francisco that was so interesting. Belli? Uh Well, the one that was played by James Woods, a movie with James Wood playing this guy. Anyway, the producer, I took a class from him on you know, how to get into producing, mm -hmm. and especially real-life stories kind of stuff, because that's kind of what he did. And he said, remember, if you want to do this kind of stuff, you know, based on something that really happened in the world, not some novel, you have to be willing to jump in with both feet and live in their world to find. Yes, to find because you're not going to get. You're not going to. I'm. I think that's what uh, UFO researchers should do. Yeah. You're only going to get a good story out of somebody if you live with them for a while and gain their trust. And yeah, and just really. And you know, go native. Jump and, in the deep and end be, and be affected by yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You know, go live among the islanders before you Margaret really writes it. You know, yeah. enter their world. 
Don't expect them to open it up to you and give you what they're you want. They're not going to open it up if you don't. If yeah. you don't, if you're not willing to meet them, and they don't have trust in you, and they don't accept you. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And I remember he passed a joint to me. He said, and I was like, "Oh God," you know. Okay. <laughs> I wasn't enthusiastic about it. Right. And so I took the little hit and passed it. Uh, but of course, being a little clean didn't take much, and I, I often just kind of and just passed it. You know? Yeah. So I, I didn't want to get stoned, you know. Right. I, right. I, I right. You want to like, keep your wits about you yeah. while you're this is exactly. your first time you're meeting her. Yeah, and it's I, amazing I, that she did that in front of you right away. Right away. Right away. <laughs> and it's sort of like, okay, in for I a penny, in for a pound. Well. You know. Uh, I'd smoked before in my life, but at it, like that point in my life, is like I, I was in a real clear space, and I liked it. Yeah. You know. Uh, anyway, so now did that have something to do with how she saw things? Well, you know, all I'm gonna say is, pot has its good points and its bad points, and it acts differently on different people, just like alcohol does. Mm-hmm. So I don't judge anybody. It's been times in my life when I think pot really got me through stuff. You know. Other times in my life when it was a pure escape and I, I was unable to face stuff and it gave me a retreat. Yeah. And I wasted many hours staring at TV screens, just too exhausted and stressed out to do anything else but, yeah. uh, you know, that kind of stuff. No, it's the only way, sometimes those things are the only way you can turn off all the noise for a while. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, live with... live with. Well, it's not the only way, but it's the easiest way. Yeah, and live with the, with the stress you're under. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I didn't like alcohol, you know. I mean, not I guess an occasional drink, but my dad had been a problem drinker, and I've always been shy of it. Yeah. I do drink a, a martini here and there, or a beer after a hot, sweaty tennis workout, but not like you know. Let's go have some beer. Now, let's go get drunk. Uh, I've never been in that school. It just doesn't appeal to me. It never has. Not in my twenties. Yeah. I didn't drink in my twenties, you know, unlike most people. And the only time I drank was in the army when you went to officer parties, and you'd better drink. Yeah. It's the same thing. You better be part of that culture. Yeah. You know, or you're toast. Mm-hmm. And I just had to get through it. Uh, and I did. But anyway, the point I was going with Carla's house. So we get to Carla's house, right? And they live outside of Little Rock, kind of in a, in a forest, really. You know, giant pines all around. And they had moved from Denton, Texas, where a lot of the experiences that happened to them, earlier experiences happened to them, and that's an even weirder story. Yeah. You know, with black men in black. I think they moved black. there to sort of get away from that experience. Well, also she said that They she were directed these, there. Yeah, that that was a dangerous place when the world changes. That Denton was? Yeah. Yeah. That's what she told me. And it may be. We'll see. Uh, but the experiences they had there were very strange, and they were directed this, there by... I describe them as, as, as two men in blacks that showed up at their house. They okay, were very I don't strange. remember that part. Oh, man, that story is really weird. You know, according to her, they were like cadavers. Like you read in the men in black stories, like yeah. they didn't have quite enough to do with food or anything else, you know. Yeah, yeah. And they had occupied these, this flesh just to be able to make contact with her. That's some weird fucking shit, pardon my French. Yeah. You know? And that's who initiated their move to. Uh, she didn't tell me that. Little part. Rock, yeah. She just told me they were directed to do so. Yeah, it's a very weird part of the story. Yeah, you know. So anyway, we go. We get to where they live outside thing, and it's like they they built the house. They had to carve a road down through the forest uh, to an area where they cleared to build a house, and it was about a 500 foot driveway off this country road. There was just trees on either side, you know, mm-hmm. very dense, like just imagine a pine forest. Right? Yeah. 
Then you got down there and you'd see where they'd cleared it, you know, and there were stumps uh, in the backyard from where they removed some of the pine trees. They had a rather large, big backyard that kind of sloped away from the house. The front of the house was on level ground, the back of the house, because the roof didn't slope down, was on pilings. So you had to go downstairs to get into the backyard. And then there was a big backyard cleared. And there was also signs of, I think I told you this, of, you know, the stories of Bud Harvey about crafts coming down, stuff like this. Well, interesting enough, in their backyard, if you looked up about 40 feet, there were branches that would turn brown and had died. You know, the outside of the pine trees, away from the from the clearing, were still green, but the branches facing in towards the house, some were broken and, and sagging, others were completely brown and dried out. You know, like completely lacking moisture, like dead pine tree branches, mm -hmm. uh, and some were broken. Matter the large branches were broken and right. hanging down halfway out. On the ground, I remember it's the early spring, you know, and it was cold. There was an area of the yard where the ground was baked. Nothing was growing there. A big circle. Mm -hmm. You know? Kind of like a ring, actually. Yeah. You know? Which is kind of strange. And the ground was hard, real hard. The rest of the yard was normal. I thought that was kind of strange. Yes. Right. And in the house... They point these things out to you? You just went out and looked? Well, I went to the backyard, and they just showed me the backyard, and we walked in the backyard, and I noticed that ring there, and I went, what's that? You know, because I read about these rings. She says, yeah, isn't that strange? You know, she didn't say, oh, flying saucer land. They'd never seen anything there. She says, but yeah, that part of the yard is really strange, you know? <laughs> like microwaves had burned it or something, or whatever it happened to happen there. And then I looked up around there, I don't know if they had noticed or not, I started looking at the trees, and I'm looking around like that, and I'm going, hmm. Looking all the way around the yard, there's trees, you know, back towards the house, and at about the same height, all the way around the yard, was this noticeable damage to the trees, noticeable damage. Yeah. It didn't exist at, you know, all the heights in the tree, it was the widest part of the trees, which are rather high up. Yeah. You know, but that it was all burnt. Yeah. And brown, and there were broken branches. Like what broke branches, which were three inches in diameter. Yeah. You know, and ends of which were kind of hanging down. So that I thought was pointed to something anomalous, truly anomalous. And anyway, so you know, we were spending the first night there, and we we're going to drive up to uh, Eureka Springs from Little Rock, you know, the next day, which we did. But that night, I was staying in the guest room. Their room was down the hall. My room was right off the living room. Their room was down the hall from the living room. And I had climbed in bed there, and I'd laid down, and put my head in the pillow. And suddenly, there was this tone that turned on like, in my ears. And it kind of turned on like you turn on a radio. Mm -hmm. And it was changing, it was roaming. It was getting higher and lower, and then gradually it settled into a steady frequency, right? And it was very irritating. Yeah. Very irritating. And at first I thought it was with my ears, you know, about the flying, needing equilibrium or something like that. And so I sat up, and I sat up, and as soon as I sat up, it stopped. And so I 
laid back down, calmed down, tried to go to sleep, and all of a sudden it came back on. Whoa, 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 did a little search, you know, and settled down much quicker into a frequency. And again, I sat up and it stopped. So I did it a third time, the same thing happened. And I said, fuck this, you yeah. know. And I got up and Sounds I went like back in the living room. Sounds like in the embassy in Cuba. Yeah, so I go back in the living room and the lights were on in the hallway and the living room lights were on full blast, which I found odd. And then I found out that that's the only way they would sleep. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> With the lights on in the house <laughs> because of what they'd been through. So I sat down on the sofa and smoked a cigarette and down the hall comes Carla. She says, can't sleep? I said, no, man. I, I said, you know, and I described what was happening in the bedroom. She says, oh, yeah, people are complaining about that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, this time, they were so used to weird shit, it was like just take it all in stride, you yeah. know? Uh, so, you know, that was my experience with Carla Turner. And also, the long driveway, she showed me um, where some of the events that she described had taken place. And if you read into the fringe... She describes like the satellite dish and then in this kind of altered state the satellite dish is, is sagging over, bent over and it's sort of like a whole different state and where the car is parked and where the, you know, and then uh, Elton is acting like he's not himself or no, the son. The son is acting different than he normally acts and the son's friend is acting really weird like they're being controlled by something else. And the whole thing said, this is really strange. This is really fringy. Yeah. And... The description of like, described like this thing moving across the yard, and it was like a panel, like if you held a, 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 a six by four sheet of plywood with two handles on the back, and you would paint it the front to look like the background, you know, <laughs> like camouflage, like yeah. a duck blind or something. And so you're trying to get across the yard without the ducks realizing you were a duck, you know, that you were hunting them. Uh, and in that description is like this thing moving across the yard with something behind it, trying to disguise itself. Uh, like they have craft now that can reflect the sky. Yeah. You know. And I begin to think, just kind of postulating, you know, that this very easily could be intelligence community bullshit. Yeah. Because it didn't seem... There's a very insistent owl right there. Yeah. I thought more of in terms of intelligence community bullshit... Mm -hmm. And I did of extraterrestrial yeah, well, because well, you would, yeah, because you know if these beings are truly exotic, they don't need that stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you're using mind control, sonics, and maybe other things to manipulate a situation, you know, you might have this device, and you might, you know, again, because it all fits in with what Elton, what, what, when they, when they put Elton, the husband, who had been in the army had been in the Army Security Agency and had been a analyst and programmer for computers back in that day, back in those days. And he had left the, uh, uh, the Army and now worked as a civilian in the same area. Very quiet, soft-spoken, yeah. grounded guy. Yeah, I know? remember. Yeah, you know. He, he seemed to very, be, even at this late, even after Carla passed away, he was still mystified as to what was going on. Yeah, yeah. He, he, wasn't, kind of, he, wasn't, he wasn't like, oh my God, I'm right. yeah. He was kind of like, this weird stuff's still happening. I don't understand. I'll tell you. And he told me just as weird stories as Carla did. Yeah. And then, you know, his experiences, 
And if you remember, in some and of those... And he put no stock about, like, you know, I'm special, or this is so no, weird, there was or no... can you believe this, or anything like that. No. He's just kind of like, well, this is another thing that happened, and I could... And I thought he was telling me, just because he wanted to get off some of it off his chest, to somebody that wouldn't go, are you crazy? Yeah, yeah, same thing. And, you know, he would, you know, if you talk to him and you ask him questions, he'd answer them in a very matter-of-fact manner. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of like, you know, I don't know what to make of it, and, you know. But remember, in some of those uh, stories that, that they got from men under regression... Uh, that he had no clue and involved a couple of things. One, being taken to an underground military installation, walking through dimly lit corridors with military equipment and stenciled equipment in big stacks on the, on the periphery of the corridors, being led into a room which is set up like a movie set, like a bar room, a saloon, seeing people he knew and recognized uh, in, in the state sitting at tables like they're in a saloon, just like turned off. Just sitting there, and he woke up sitting at one of these tables and kind of woke up in it, like and look around and recognize that this was going on, right? Yeah. When this sergeant then came and picked him, told him to come with him, took him into a a separate room off the set, next to the set, in this big ca ca cavernous space, right, in which he was then mercilessly grilled and interrogated by a red-headed sergeant, the echoes of... Yeah, I've heard that before. Streber? No, of uh, Roswell. Some of the stories from Roswell. Okay. Uh, ask him, one to know, what are the aliens telling you? What do they want? You know? And him, just resenting the, 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 the attitude, and I can relate that completely, you know, the, the, the army takes an attitude. We can intimidate you into doing anything we want. Yeah. You know, and they do do that. You know, uh, and maybe it's you know a psychological technique they learn. But in the, in the description was they were trying to intimidate him into it. But Galton, like a louse would, like I would, goes, because you're treating me like that. Fuck you. I'm yeah. not going to tell you shit. Yeah. You know, and Did the harder you, know? you push, you know, the more I'm just going to look at you like. Nothing happening here. It's like when somebody tailgates me, yeah. you know? It's like, oh, you think you're going to make me speed up? Yeah. I'm taking my foot off the accelerator. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. <laughs> like, live with it or back off. Yeah. You know? And then or go around. Yeah, or they'll get mad and pass you on the right and flip you off and yell nasty things at you. And it's like, you know, I'm not getting into your space, so just <laughs> yeah. do what you're going <laughs> to do. Whatever. Anyway, when you put it all together, his experiences like that, in the underground cavern... And uh, the stencil military equipment, and the interrogation, and another experience he recalled, where before he even met Carly, he was dating another woman, and they went to the Lover's Lane, a lookout over, when he's living in Oklahoma, you know, over a hill, when they suddenly had missing time, and after that, that incident on that hill where they had missing time, his girlfriend was an angry, nasty person that she hadn't been before. Mm -hmm. And he didn't have any recollection of it, except the time that they couldn't account for the time. I'm you trying know. to think. You might have told me about this, because I remember talking to him about Oklahoma, because my dad grew up there. Yeah. So we had a little bit of a common... Yeah. So, you know, they were definitely the victims, or participants, in a very high strangeness scenario. Yeah, from whatever source. Whatever source. Yeah. Right. And we'll never know. What happened to you while you were there, besides that noise? You said there was, like... There was movement in the trees while you were there, or noises in the trees? 
I remember you told me about that. Or was it you telling me about what Carla had told you? I'm not recalling, to be honest with you. Hmm. Not recalling. Oh, oh. I think I also told you that they built You them. said the, the trees were moving around like it was windy, but there was no wind. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, now you remember. Now I remember, yeah. And it's funny because... And you told me this right when you got back. Yeah. You see, the backyard sloped down, and it kept going like... You could see over the trees that it sloped down and away from the house eventually, you know? Yeah. Into like a really green, just so, all you saw was trees, very greenery. And into a draw, and then the other side, the hill went back up again, quite a distance away. Like looking across from my backyard, across the canyon here, you know? It sloped down and went back up. And, yeah, it was strange. There was this, uh, it was like the trees were moving like it was windy. Mm-hmm. There was no wind. That was creepy. Yeah. And then it was also right this next... This is full 100% consciousness. You're oh, awake. Oh, yeah. This is this daytime. This is outside. Oh. Um, weird. And then they had built for, for Elton's mother a little mother-in-law house next to their house, separate, enough distance so she had her privacy and they had their privacy. Mm -hmm. you know, but he came on the same driveway and then it forked and yeah. a little bit over there was her house, right? Now... She reported and t told, and they said, you know, t tell they got, Carly got her to repeat what she said she saw once or twice, which was coming out of this draw there were these black boxcar-sized craft with red lights on the corners that would come silently out of the draw and then pass over the trees over their heads. Maybe that was the source of the winds or something. I don't know. Or the behavior of the winds. And she, you know, she was down to earth as you can get, you know, kind of an Oklahoma lady, kind of mm -hmm. older lady. You know, she wasn't looking for any recognition. And much like Elton's temperament, just had a kind of matter-of-fact attitude about it. Yeah. 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 I don't know what that was. <laughs> yeah, they, were, they were kind of you know, jet black with red lights on the corners and, you know... They came out of this... You mean just like a box? Like a box, like a rectangular box. Yes, okay. You know, and, and not the all the same the size. Color. Oh, okay. Some large and some small. <laughs> you didn't tell me about this. Yeah. So that, I think that's what you're referring to. Okay. Yeah. I think Elton told me later after Carla died that some of this stuff was still going on, but it had ramped down quite a bit. Let me tell you something. When, I, when, when you get that close to something like that, I don't know about you, but it's like... I don't want to get any closer to it. Yes, this is a thing I've been saying recently about uh, drawing the, the the phenomenon to you. People are saying, "What are people going to believe?" And it's like when it can be done basically on command, on demand, but it's going to be different for everybody. They're all going to have to come through it by slightly different method methods, and they're going to have to. And it, nothing, they won't be able to compare notes except that something very strange happens. <laughs> yeah. It's like. Yes, I felt like that, but that's not what I saw. Yeah. Kind of thing. And at that point, and that's a very frightening point to get to, that point, you know, Whitley Strieber's thing about everybody being contacted, I'm, you know, I'm not going to use, I'm not using that model of aliens contacting us, but something happened to somebody on a grassroots level that comes from the bottom up, not the top down. Yeah. Or by telling somebody about it. You can't tell somebody. I've, a, I've got this weird feeling that a lot of people that have a heavy belief in UFOs and aliens and all that, um, if something happened to them that wasn't that scenario, 
they wouldn't believe it or wouldn't notice <laughs> it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's true. I think we'd screen it out. They'd screen it out, just like I said. If Penn and Teller saw a ghost, they probably wouldn't even they wouldn't even notice, or they would not acknowledge that something strange happened that was out of the ordinary. I think that's what it is about people. So, I think at some point, if people get to the point where you can experience something weird on command, on demand, or at least a lot of people can, then things will start to change. But not in the way that UFO researchers want it to, not in the way the media can cover, not in the way that you can really write a book about it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, I, I totally agree with you there, because I know I've, I've been on the fringe of that, and you have too. Yeah, and I'm trying to push for some method, but, and it, it's not very, it's a scary thing to do, because I, I've had Jeff Ritzman on my show, and he said, you can have an experience, I'll tell you, and he says, but I don't want to talk about it. It's like, come on, come on, come on, I'm talking about it. So he did. And He's an interesting guy. Yeah, and he came, yeah, he used to make me nervous because I, because I, I'd been on his show a couple times and he seemed a little wild and yeah. all that. Um, either he's not like that or he's different now um, because I get along with him great in a way that I didn't think I would yeah. because he's been very deeply into this at a very high level, not high level, like whatever, but at a very involved level for a very long time more thoughtful way too. more than me and thoughtful about it yeah and the conclusions he's come to is yeah sure you can have an experience go somewhere you could do it here um go somewhere where there's not really city around where you have a quiet space by yourself at night the same place every night and and It'll think about having you. some kind of experience and he said about 60% of the time, something happens to people. Well, that's and it's Strieber. not when they expect it, and it's not what they expect. It's completely different than it. But I want to see a ship with lights. Almost nobody ever has that. He says, what you get is people sitting there in the dark and then seeing a big black thing blocking out their field of view for a few seconds. Like, whoop, and they go, what the? Well, that's what happened to Don and I on, on, on uh, Zizek's Road. Oh, yeah? I didn't hear about back, this. Well, that, 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 we described our experience coming back from Vegas on Zizek's Road, right? No. Oh. You might have, but I don't remember it. Well, let's save that for another episode. Okay. Right. But I will say this. Um, <laughs> Cliffhanger, thank you. Uh, uh, well, Don and I have told this story because we had such so, so an adventure. Yeah. But, but anyway, we'd pulled off a Zizek's Road on the way back from going to examine some photos that a guy claimed to have of Area 51 that showed UFOs in it. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I remember yeah, that. Yeah, it was a quite, a, quite a funny story. But anyway, we're on our way back, you know, and by the time we hit uh, Baker and we're heading uh, past there, you know, uh, there was a pull up on Zigzag Road, and, and we both had drank so much coffee, we had to pee really bad, like racehorses who had been doctored. And uh, <laughs> so we pulled off there, going south, and it, you know, it doesn't go anywhere. It, it, you go off. Yeah, it ends at, it ends at the Zizek's, um community, which is now like the uh, uh, California State University system. Owned. Well, no, that's going north. Oh, the other direction. Coming south. We're coming back from Vegas. Oh, okay. And when you have this, you kind of get off. Oh, there, there's a, like a road that goes up there and basically ends. It ends in a big flat area. Yeah, yeah, like, like a gravel area. Gravel area. Yeah. And then beyond that, it's just a desert, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been there. So, yeah. So, you know, I was driving... Uh, uh, and it's hilly there. It's like these low mountains. Yeah, low mountains. And so we pulled off there, and we both were like, get out of the car and, and pee, you know. So we kind of walked the edge of the gravel, got out of the Buick Regal, and uh, we were standing there, you know, voiding our bladders. And it was kind of a dimly lit night, no moon, a lot of stars. And Don says, oh, did you see that? And I said, what? He said, you didn't see that? And he described seeing a black shadow move across in front of the hills in front of him. It's a big black shadow. Yeah. Not on the ground, just like... Like just, something was there, but you couldn't see it. Couldn't see it. It wasn't casting a shadow, it just was it a It was just area. a black 
Yeah, yeah this, people describe this in um, ghost tenting too. Yeah, interesting. A blacker than black area. Yeah, that's what they described. And uh, so, you know, we finished peeing and we walked back towards the car, which was sitting there with the lights still on but turned off so we could see around us. Yeah. It was my, it was my wife's white Buick Regal, two seater. Uh, a, a late 80s Buick Regal. And uh, we looked up, Don looked up, he says, whoa, what's that? And looking back north towards Vegas, right, over the desert, well, these lights looked like they seemed to be moving and dancing, changing color and moving and dancing, changing color and moving and dancing. And we both stopped looking at it, and we're going, are they moving? I mean, is it, is it our eyes doing that thing? Sometimes you look at stars and you think, that star is not a star, it's moving. Yeah. But you realize, no, it's that auto, whatever they call it, where the eyes are moving mm -hmm. and deceiving mm -hmm. your brain to thinking right. they're moving or right. something. But well, you I don't have, have any point of reference. Right, but we did because on the back of the Buick in the left rear was a straight up aerial, radio area. So we could close one eye and line up on it, you know, which I did and Don did to see if it was our eyes tricking us off the lights were moving. Yeah. And the lights were definitely moving. And they were dancing, they were changing color. And they were dancing, including this kind of weird sort of zip, 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 really quick. And then it stopped, and one might do this kind of falling leaf motion. Oh, boy, the falling leaf motion. Yeah, and then zip back. and they're Like they're doing some kind of bizarre dance, like with some kind of living creature. I've seen video of this at a place outside of it. It's really? the only piece of video that really? really impressed me. This was shot in the late 80s or early 90s, shooting north towards Nellis. There's a hill, and these lights are doing, they're going, and then they go... And then, and they're just doing. You've seen video of that? Yeah. Well, because that's exactly the direction we're looking back towards. Well, our... yeah. This was. If you're in Vegas, here's Nellis Air Force Base, uh -huh. north of Vegas. There's a little hill there, a little mountain, and it was shot out of a hotel window, supposedly. You know who showed it? This is Eric Beckyard of all people. <laughs> Good God. So, and I'm still looking for this footage. It's just these four or five little lights, and they look like they're all playing. And it's over this hill, and you can see them actually go behind the hill a little bit, because when they go behind, they, they get blocked. But they're going, they're sort of, you know, irregularly yeah, dancing yeah. around and going up in the air. They reach a Doing certain loop place. Doing loop-to-loops and and, the, yeah, and they reach a certain place, and they do this, like a falling leaf. And then they go back up again. Yeah, now see... And there's four or five of them doing this all at the same time. That would match up with the direction we were looking, because this we, 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 when we saw this... We were looking directly north. Yeah, but you're back like 200 miles away from well, it. Well, this is way up, though. These oh, okay, were much okay. higher up. These weren't low down. Yeah, well, these were low down near yeah. this little, this mountain in the distance. Yeah. But the same movement and the same description. Now, see, I would suspect that being That's development a, One of the project. few pieces of UFO footage I've ever seen that I'm like... And this was like, you know, late 80s, early 90s, where you couldn't fake that convincingly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd like to see that footage. I'm still looking for it. Hmm. I've, I've been looking for it online for a while. People have sent me stuff. It's like, nope, that's not it. Oh, I like and I know I saw it. Probably UFO Video Dave has. <laughs> Probably he does, right? Remember that guy? Yeah. <laughs> Carlos says, I saw those lights while at Nellis in 1992. Who said that? Carlos, uh, one of our, oh. our our friend Carlos. Well, that would be about the time. Yeah. That would be about the time we saw something it. Was, so, Carlos, I bet something was being tested out there. That's that what I think. That. Yeah. That's the thing came to my mind. They were testing something. That's why I, I, I say one aspect of this UFO phenomena that people experience is definitely oh, yeah. human. I, I, don't, I completely agree with you yeah. on it. I don't know about the majority, but a lot. I, I guess I shouldn't have said majority, but when I think of 
Could be. Yeah, I, I mean, I think of, you know, how much these sightings are around military bases uh, and the kind of sightings they are, you know, I don't know. I think we've been way ahead of that curve. And the amount of secrecy that the military-industrial complex maintains and the kind of intimidation they put on contractors like these aerospace people, the total intimidation of them, the amount of disinformation scenarios that the intelligence community puts out about UFOs, making us look over there, look over there, look yeah. over there, you know, it's extraterrestrial. Yeah, I've, I've uh, had this uh, discussion with Chris O'Brien, and we said this a few years ago, if we see something going on in front of us, the first thing we want to do, each of us, is look behind us. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, everybody's looking over, just kind of go. Look over there, there's look behind you. Just fight every every everything in your being that wants to keep looking at thing and look in another direction look direct look 180 degrees away from it and see what might be happening i tell you the san Luis valley is strange yeah. i've spent time there driving out and doing i've told you this long before i had any interest in this stuff uh, oh me too i went out there i went to pagosa springs one time and creed and creed 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 is creed is where the university of kansas former students create a summer repertory company. Right? Oh. And I went to visit it Old twice. mining town. Old mining town. And, uh, you know, you have to go back into southern, uh, southeastern Colorado hills to get to it. And the uh, University of Kansas has a, you know, some of the graduates started. I was there in the middle of winter. It was, summer rep. It was surreal. Oh, boy. But while I was there, you know, that summer, some of my friends were there. Mandy Patinkin was there, you know. Mm. And Mandy, Mandy had come to KU after seeing me perform in a play at, at uh, KU and came up to me after the show, which was an original rock musical we did about violence in America based on Quantrill's Letters to His Mom. And uh, he was a senior in high school. But then he came, came up to stage after the, la the performance of Quantrill when he was there. And he ran up through the crowd. And I was up on the stage. And he, he looked up and he said, hey, hey, hey. And I went, yeah. He said, hey, I, I want to work with you. I want to work with you. I'm Mandy Patinkin, and he put out his hand and took my hand, he says, uh, remember me, I'm, I'll be here in the fall, I want to work with you. I said, oh, okay, and sure enough, in the fall, Mandy looked me up right away, you know, and we became friends for a while. In fact, he asked me to direct him in, a, in his directing pro, in his acting project, uh, which I did, and then we did a, a, another one-act play together, you know. Uh, he was a big fan of mine at the time, yeah. but he, he had a voice like an angel. Yes. And And... He yeah, he a, still does. He's done oh, music albums, which he's God. probably more famous for than his acting. Oh, man, could he sing? I mean, you just, he just knocked you out with his yeah. voice. You know? And he went off to, you know, to Broadway and right. you know, had quite a career. But, uh, so anyway. what happened in Creed? Well, in Creed, there were a bunch of actors uh, who would come you know, do the summer rep thing from KU. There was Mandy and there was John Green. So we went out to visit, me and a few other people. We'd driven out and, and, and other guys. Volkswagen Westphalia van from KU, and that was a great trip, you know. And things were different then because it was hot, so we'd drive with the side door open, yeah, you know, <laughs> and let the breeze in. But I love sitting in the back of that Westphalia because you could sit on that bench, which was way back there, or you could sit on the floor, you yeah. know. It was just fun, you know. Right. You know, about I think about three of us in the car, and it was a great trip, and uh, it was a beautiful summer night. I remember. Going back behind the, 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 the front row of, of, of the main street, and right behind the front row of main street or, or hillside, and John and Mandy and I walked back there to sit in the hillside. John and Mandy were talking about the UFOs they were seeing. 
you know, and I went, really? Really? Yeah, we see them all the time, man. I was going, wow, that's interesting. I'd like to see one while I'm here. I didn't, you know, because I was only there a couple of nights. But uh, they were talking about it back then. But I just know that my roommate, I was in Santa Fe in college, you know, my roommate lived in Denver, and so occasionally I'd go up for a three-day weekend with him in his, in his Volkswagen, uh, little low and Carbon Gear. Carbon Gear. Yeah. We'd drive up through La Vida Pass or Raton Pass, you know, down to San Luis Valley. Which are high passes. High passes, right. And the thing is, part of it was being a flatlander. The idea of being these high passes was like magical to me, coming mm -hmm. from the swamps, you know. So I, I kind of got a thrill and a, and a rush out of that. Like I was on a different planet or something. Yeah. So it kind of set me up. What was that ski up. area? Uh, Pago uh, Wolf Creek. Wolf Creek, yeah. I went skiing there. Did you? It was beautiful. Oh, God. Gorgeous. I never skied Everybody there. Everybody there was so friendly, and it was so mellow. And I really liked it. Oh, yeah. Well, that was, yeah, that was such a great time, too, back in the 60s. I mean, things were so much more laid back. Taos. That's not when I went. Santa Fe, <laughs> yeah. But it was back then. 80s, I, know that. I mean, Santa Fe was so laid back then, you know. Yeah. I mean, um, I notice the difference now, even just with Santa Fe and, and uh, oh, Taos are much different. Much different. I went to visit them a couple of years ago, and it's like Santa Fe had changed so much, it saddened me. You know, I mean, it was now well, it's like I went to see like the Rodeo New Drive. Year's dance at the Taos Pueblo, like in the late 80s, early 90s. And then I went, like, in the early 2000s. It's all Twice as many people, and it seemed like... It seemed like they didn't really mind that you were there, but the second time I went, ten years later, they seemed almost resentful that there were tourists yeah. there. I don't know if it's just me or what. No, no, that, it, it got that way. I found the same thing in Santa Fe, you know. But the same in the sixties, the locals, the lo young locals, hated hated us college boys <laughs> because they, you know the boys had to compete with us college kids who had money and a future for yeah. the girls there. Yeah, yeah. And the girls there looked at local boys and said. Yeah. I know my future if I stay with you. Yeah. You know, you'll be a janitor or a mechanic. Yeah. I'll have a baby, and yeah. we'll just pass on the same misery we've been living forever. Yeah. But if I land a college boy and get the fuck out of here, you know, yeah. same thing, like all military towns. Mm -hmm. And so, you, you know, when you first go there, when you come to the College of Santa Fe, this little Catholic college there, they don't allow you to go in town mm -hmm. for the first two months. And when they do let you go, you have to go with an upperclassman. He's going to make sure you learn the ropes before you get right, yourself right. Don't, into a don't, crap. Don't screw it up for us with these locals. Yeah, and don't get yourself beat up or killed. Yeah. You know, uh, I did get cornered my, you know, before the school even started because you know, I drove out there with my parents and the, 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 the fiesta was going on. Mm. School hadn't started yet. And we're downtown what, the square. What, the Zazobra? Uh, they, they burned the God of Gloom. They burned the yeah, God that's of Gloom. Yeah, that's Zazobra. You know, uh, so anyway, we're there for the festival, and uh, my aunt and uncle are my, my mom Taos, right? No, this is Santa Fe. Oh, Santa Fe does it. That's right. Yeah, I yeah. think Taos does it, too. Yeah, they all do it. It's a very, very big thing for them, yeah. you know. And I, I was elected freshman class president, and my job was to build a bonfire and build a big head of the Zobra, you know, and have... Yeah, the, and everybody puts their bitches, the, their yeah, bitch thing like, that they don't like, and they burn them in the... Right, Yom Kippur almost, you know. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, so I had to... They told me, you know, at the last minute, oh, by the way, you're responsible for building the bonfire and the Zazobra. I went, what? Yeah, you're freshman <laughs> class building president. Building the what and the who? Well, nobody told me. Yeah, well, you got to do it. You know, it's tomorrow night. It's like, <laughs> oh, my God. what a It's hazing. You know, got to grab some guys and, you know, it kind of got all together. And so it, I didn't think it was Zazobra, except I, I saw images. So I did is I took a sheet, you know, and I drew this big head of Zazobra on it, you know, and then wrapped it around the, the, the bonfire thing. So we had this big 
face would almost look like, uh, you know, what's the movie about the the, the Parliament, uh, the guy who burned the Parliament? Of, oh, uh, it looked like the uh, anonymous face, Anonym, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Guy Fox. Guy Fox, like you know, with a goatee and a yeah, you know. yeah. So that's what I drew, kind of a big face like that, you know. <laughs> anyway, I got in trouble that first weekend we're there. Uh, we were downtown to Fiesta, and I, I went roaming down the street to you know, just look around, see what's going on. And I turned the corner and was walked about half a block, and then suddenly I was surrounded by a group of about five or six, uh, I call them, I guess, half Indian, half Mexican teenage boys. Locals. Right, who were threatening me, you know. Saying they were going to kick my ass, uh, I was wearing, you know, I was I was Mr. All American Boy with a button down shirt and a, <laughs> a seersucker striped a sport coat on. Oh and, God! You know, loafers on, you know. Beep beep beacon. Uh, yeah, beacon. And uh, you know, I was kind of like scared, you know. And they kind of backed me up against this garage door, you know, and hemmed me in. And one, the little leader was like, you know, saying half that in Spanish and calling me all kind of things, you know. Pinchy cabron and all that kind of stuff like that. Yeah. But I, got, I definitely got the impression they were going to kick my ass. So I didn't wait, you know. So I took on that first guy. I, I, I kicked him in, in, in the knee really hard. You know, I hyperextended his knee really hard. And then it took a very aggressive attitude. Like, who's next? Who's next? Who wants to come, come in? Come and get You know, you want to come and get it, you know. And this guy was on the ground moaning and, cr and crying, you yeah. know. Because I really kicked him because I was really afraid. Yeah. Because these guys looked like <laughs> they were Something gonna, else kicks in. Yeah. Yeah, something took over, and then uh, I just walked out between them and went back to the square real fast. <laughs> it's funny, <laughs> see, the leader always take the leader down. That oh made, yeah, that happened to me again in Colorado. That's, that's like that. That's penny dreadful prison stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, but something just kicks in. You do it. Yeah. Hey, Richard, um, I, I I'll probably have to play it through my phone. What song do you want to hear at the end here? And I can just get it off of YouTube, I guess. Wow, what do I want to hear? Um, um, I want to hear Don't Fear the Reaper <laughs> because of my recent experiences and the conversation I had to you about the only decision I had control over in my life Yeah, and because of the old UFO UFOs Tonight theme song
Candles blew and then disappeared. The curtains flew and. 